Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson. I'm the editor of Squiggly Magazine. I'm joined by Ben Mitchell. Hi, I'm Ben. I'm features writer for Squiggly and I haven't slept in days. We're in podcast number three. This train continues to, you know, keep trundling along. We have some more exciting guests for you, some more exciting features for you, some more audience feedback and all that good stuff. Today we've got an interview with Nancy Beeman, uh, educator, animator, author, some fantastic books. She's a lady who's worked on just about every single American pop culture character in the last 50 years. Disney, Warner Brothers, Peanuts, everyone you can think of. And we get to chat to voiceover legend Billy West of Futurama and Ren and Stimpy fame, amongst others. All in all, a very nostalgic podcast ahead, as you'll soon find out. So strap in, kids. Here we go. So you were recently at the uh, London MCM comic convention, weren't you, Ben, with your own comic? Uh, how did that go? Well, it, uh, it was culturally eye-opening. I'm, uh, I'm very green when it comes to these types of events. I've been to, I think, two in like seven years just to, you know, go and <clears throat> meet the quasi-famous people and geek out. And uh, this was my first sort of big convention as a vendor. So you get to watch everyone in attendance walk past you. And uh, something I've learned, I've, I've always kind of thought to myself, people who kind of write other people off for being geeks, like saying, oh, this person's, you know, he's a, a nerd because he likes dressing up and that person. Like, I've always felt that that was kind of a limited outlook on life, mm. you know, because, because people, you know, they can have passions and they can like what they want. And if they have a forum in which to enjoy that, then more power to them, you know. And I, I have, have, have always kind of respected that until this last weekend. Right. Mother of God, they're freaks. <laughs> I mean, most of them are fine. It's it's the, the you know, you want to play dress. And we've all dressed up at like a Halloween party. It's pretty much that same thing. Yeah. Um, just, you know, people having fun. But some people are so angry. There's this weird personality thing of like, you're dressed like a Pokemon. Cheer up. <laughs> it's sort of hard to quite pinpoint what it is without sounding like a snob because I'm certainly a geek you know I'm I'm but I my level of geekery is so nothing compared to like what these people are able to do and put themselves through that I feel like you know out of place I feel like I'm the outcast in this mm. situation it was a fun weekend in terms of you know the other people I got to meet but yeah eye-opening so besides your sort of realized hatred for anyone who likes to dress up did we have any animation news or anything from you oh that's right this is an animation podcast. it is an animation yeah, podcast um yeah, well, I guess the big news, I mean, there's all sorts of little things. It was mainly a video game type expo, and they had, uh, there are various, like, film type promotional events. There was some stuff about the Lorax, which is fairly, you know, heavily documented at the moment anyway. I guess the big announcement was Kevin Eastman was there. Now, Kevin Eastman was the co-creator of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And uh, I didn't really get to interact with him. I got to watch him sign a lot of stuff, you know, and sort of a very, very, very long line of, of people who, you know, have the, the turtles, I guess, as part of their life. And I, I certainly liked that whole franchise when I was a kid. The turtles when I was a kid, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or mm -hmm. Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles were a huge part of my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. I remember once it was fancy dress at school, going back to your idea of hating people in fancy dress. Uh -huh. It was a fancy dress day at school. I was a child. I was allowed to. Yeah. And I had a Raphael costume. And, uh, the pensive, it, moody one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it had these, uh, I don't know what, what his weapon was called, 
they were like handheld knife things. Yeah, yeah, like the three prong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had them instantly confiscated off me at school. For uh, <laughs> were they real? They weren't real. They were made oh. out of plastic. They didn't cause. <laughs> they didn't cause much damage, but they caused. The, the, there was enough of my sort of jumping around and flipping around and getting excited about being Raphael right. to warrant the teacher confiscating them until the end of the day. Yes, technically you could do a little bit of damage with a plastic prong. I'm sure I'm not the only child in a Bradford school to have a weapon confiscated <laughs> from. Her. I remember the 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 main issue was in terms of like Britain and censoring the whole show was the. Uh, Nunchucks. So there was no actual mention of nunchucks whenever they would show it in England. But the nunchucks were like the main weapon of one of them. Yeah. So all his scenes were taken out. And I remember because I, I have like two sort of parallel childhoods. One is the Canadian childhood and one is the British childhood. And the Canadian childhood had all this extra Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in it of these scenes with, you know, um, the turtle and his nunchucks. And what I remember about, like, the movie is that there was whole segments of the movie in England that were removed, anything that involved nunchucks. Really? And it completely changes, like, a lot of the context. And my favorite bit was and this was like a running joke in our family because we sort of knew the two versions was the way they they uh, dispense of the bad guy the shredder um, yeah. at the end is that the turtles are actually turn out to be completely ineffective and it's their old sensei rat the master splinter comes to their rescue and he gets rid of the shredder and he does this sweet nunchuck move and dangles him over a rooftop and then kind of taunts him a bit and then lets him go because they couldn't show the nunchucks <laughs> in England that movie ends with the Shredder charging at Splinter who then just steps out of the way and Shredder, <laughs> and Shredder falls off the rooftop and there's no sweet nunchuck did, move did, did the player slide whistle as you go? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a shame I, I mean Michelangelo was my favourite when I was a kid because he yeah. was the party dude if you remember the, yeah, the yeah. title sequence and I, I do remember a, a distinct lack of him getting involved in anything I always thought of him as like a sort of shaggy off Scooby Doo reluctant <laughs> to get involved just interesting I'll just be over here guys I'll just be here with my, my, with my pizza you know <laughs> but I'd love to see the director's cut then that the old, all the kids in Canada got I'm sure that would be uh, I think like now it's it's not an issue because now you, it's called Ninja Turtles in England and I think those yeah. I think the attitude toward violence has been replaced with an unhealthy attitude towards sex in so, as far as you know you have to remove it completely from children's programming yeah now there is a a degree that you can't expose kids to it obviously you can't expose kids to pornography but we as kids could watch who framed roger rabbit and jessica rabbit was that was a fun character you know yeah and if you're a, a little a little boy you know six seven years old maybe she put some hairs on your chest you know what i'm saying <laughs> i don't think anyone particularly wanted to to hook up with april o'neill was that the uh, yellow Boiler suit. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't really that hot, to be honest. Maybe that was how they got around that in the uh, olden days. Plus, she was ginger. And uh, <laughs> So what was new at the uh, from the Ninja Turtles then, Ben? From what I can tell, from catching sort of snippets of the panel discussion, it's a new cartoon series. It's a new animated series, not a new movie, although there is a new movie coming out. Uh, has it got anything to do with this new movie, the one with where they're aliens now instead of... <laughs> I, well, I don't think it ties in. Like, mm. I think it's, it's... I mean, obviously, they're both about Ninja Turtles, but in the same sort of way, like... The thing is, like, if you, if you like a franchise or you like, you know, a, a sort of core group of characters and whatever, you know, it's like inevitably there's going to be incarnations that you don't gel with yeah you know and there have been 
I remember that first Ninja Turtles movie being a, a kid, and whether or not it would hold up as a, a film for adults. Like I saw it on TV like five years ago, and I, I it was perfectly watchable. Yeah, like Sam Rockwell is in it. Yeah, <laughs> and little other sort of things that kind of keep you watching, you know. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that you know, at the end of the day, there's a Jim Henson Muppet movie, but it's still fun, you know. And I would quite happily watch those old movies, you know. Yeah, uh, stuff like Labyrinth and Dinosaurs and and the Muppet movie and you know the Muppet Show. It's a, they're stuff for kids, but there is enough endearing stuff and enough sort of engaging stuff for adults. Oh, especially under the craft of Jim Henson. Yeah, you and know. there's a really well mastered medium that sort of animatronic puppetry that, and I guess sort of got replaced by CG sort of midnight is on yeah there's a shame to it would be it would be an awful shame if, to lose that you know from from a from a sort of a Muppet perspective or from a yeah. sort of effects perspective whether it be Jim Henson or, or Stan Winston Workshop kind of things um, it is a shame to see a full CGI yeah. thing because you know the original Jurassic Park it worked so well didn't it yeah 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 there's a charm I think to that kind of uh, uh puppetry or whatever that that can't really be replicated with animation and vice versa Mm -hmm. yeah you need to sort of know the right kind of context for it and i remember like it sort of felt like as a kid you knew when you were being condescended to and that first movie wasn't condescending like it was about there were elements of the cartoon but essentially it was about a, a bunch of you know thugs in New York, like young teenage thugs who would go around, like at one point, you know, uh, the reporter gets smacked in the face. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, you know, I don't know if you'd be able to do that in a kid's movie now, um, or a, a, even, a, I don't really know what the target age group was at the time, but I remember they did sequels that I despised because they were talking down to me and I was not much older. I was like, you know, five or six or whatever. Mm-hmm. You just know as a kid, you know. And that, I think, kind of speaks to the whole nature of, of any franchise that has all these different, you know, uh, versions of the characters. And I kind of feel like I'd really like Batman, but I just don't know where to start, you know? Yeah. So you go with, like, the, the obvious stuff, the the Nolan movies and mm-hmm. all the Tim Burton movies. And, you know, if you want something camp, the Adam West TV show. Yeah. But, like, as far as the comics are concerned, there's so many, you know, different starting points. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of happened with, you know, certain franchises like Ninja Turtles. And so I don't know what version in terms of number, you know, this new animated show is going to be mm-hmm. um, and what, you know, it'll be most similar to. It seems like it has more echoes of the original 80s cartoon series. It seems more fun. It doesn't seem to be as taking itself as seriously as some of the. Um, the newer cartoons did yeah. you know I think that if you're going to have a premise that's that absurd mm-hmm. you'd need to to have the levity that goes with it you know um, and even the old old comics you know that were far more you know uh, uh, straight faced there was still humour in them like they would they would make these sort of self aware asides and stuff like that there was more violence as well and there was more you know people actually died in it but I think this is kind of obviously contemporized in the sense of you know different animation style it's a kind of CG style with you know uh, um, not flat but not especially elaborate texturing the general sort of premise I guess is that you know they're meant to be more youthful like they're meant to be more like teenagers which was the one thing that actually never kind of gelled as far as I was like they always seemed older than teenagers I always thought of them as adults yeah they were tall and they had muscles and they used to kick people in the face yeah I, and know? he was saying that they he wants them to be muscly but that kind of wiry muscle that you have as a, as a teenager I yeah. didn't have but you know, <laughs> yeah, the other kids on the, the on the give them the acne team. give them acne yeah. and, uh, you know get them depressed all the time and I think um, Splinter's younger uh, the rat and I think 
and I think the big change is that uh, April O'Neil is younger. She's a teenager as well. Now, that is the only thing that I think is the major change, because she was always a, a grown woman. And he actually, he made a point of saying that whether it's Kevin Eastman's decision or whether it was sort of a pressure from the, the changing cultural climate, going back to what we were talking about before, of the idea of a woman in her 30s hanging out with what are essentially a group of teenage boys seemed kind of creepy mm-hmm. now, but it didn't in the 80s. No. You know? um, and the idea that, you know, one of them has a crush on her, you know, uh, which I think was a recurring thing, like... That has the whole extra layer of interspecies <laughs> issues to, to... Yeah, yeah. But these things we just didn't kind of question back in the day, and I don't imagine kids would now, mm. you know. Um, Another point, just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. If there were teenagers, how could they drive that cool van? Good God, you're right. But they were doing most things illegal. I don't think turtles have uh, the same laws as, uh, as as people do they no I suppose not I mean they wouldn't the driving test would they and got away with it wearing the trench coats and the hats that they used to wear when they went out in daylight so yeah I don't know if it's going to tie in with the, the new film I presume not and I, from what I gather the new film is um, live action and I don't know if that's going to be using animation for the turtles or animatronics for the turtles but I, I yeah what a lot of people are saying is that the more significant change than one of the characters being younger is that they're actually not mutants anymore. They're aliens from outer space. This is this is quite a, a big sore point within the uh, the fanboy community, really, isn't it? That that he's taken out quite an essential part of the of the, even out of the title. Mm. You know, teenage mutant ninja turtles. There's four things that you've got to add there yeah. in order to get the teenage mutant ninja turtles. If you take it away, mutant, you're a quarter out of out of your what quota. What the thing is, yeah. you're a quarter away from wh- where it's supposed to be. So, is it going to be called mutant ninja turtles or just teenage ninja? Well, turtles? Well, they can't be mutants because they're aliens. So it might be alien ninja turtles. Uh, it almost seems like the the alien thing is too obvious. And also, why would they be turtles if they're aliens? I uh, I, I probably, in all honesty, I'm not going to see it. That's the the thing is like why I can't really get too head up about it because hmm. you know I. I all these different incarnations, all these different versions, you know, and only, I would say probably the smaller percentage of them I actually would have considered myself a fan of. Like, I did like the old cartoon, I did like that first movie, mm-hmm. um, and there were like a bunch of video games. But there have been so many other, like, you know, other newer cartoon series, other movies, a CG movie, you know, um, uh, those terrible sequels. Uh, and it's hard to sort of work out which, you know, audience each one was for. Was it for the same audience? Was it for a different audience? Were they purposefully targeting it to younger children to make yeah. it more mainstream, to sell more? So it's, it's. Uh, I'd be interested to see, you know, which uh, category this sort of falls into. Hmm. And I think also I, I am more inclined to watch new animation now that I work in it. So now I'm kind of interested to see how it's going to turn out. There wasn't much by way of sort of new footage shown, so it didn't really shed much light in that respect. But, you know, something to keep one's eyes open for. And do you think in future there'll be people, the kids of today, discussing the animated series that's yet to come? Probably. I mean, these okay. things can keep rolling over and, and you know... Mm. I think, I mean, I think there was only animated once, but think of, like, the Adams Family. Now, that's something that's gone on... I don't know when those New Yorker cartoons were exactly, but I would assume for me like the 40s, Yeah, you know? And that's another one where I, I, for the most part, I don't like it, except for, A, those old cartoons, the newspaper cartoons, and those two movies in the 90s. But there have been endless versions of that premise. 
that goofy family who lives on the hill and they're kind of spooky and kooky and yeah, whatever. Monsters. Yeah. Yeah. And the, but they, some of them have re- redone that as Mockingbird Lane now, haven't they? They've redone the monsters. But even just sort of within like the Adams family itself, like keeping with those specific group of characters, they throw so much shit against the wall. It becomes less about what the, the premise is and about like what the creative team behind it is, mm-hmm. you know? They did a. I did try and sit through this. I did, at the end of the day, it kind of was boring, so I couldn't sit through all of it. But it was a great idea. This was a TV movie. It was Ninja Turtles animated, and it was about now from an animator's perspective, and and uh, it was a sort of metaphysical story about the newer animated Ninja Turtles meet the ninja the Ninja Turtles of the eighties. Yeah, you know. Who were the hero turtles in England? Yeah, um, and how like the one group of the, these huge muscular, you know, contemporary designs meeting these goofy eighties cartoon characters who mm-hmm. are always cracking wise, and they then eventually and they have like the the old Shredder and the new Shredder um, interacting with each other, and then they eventually go to meet the old black and white comic book Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Now, I think on paper, that's a great idea for a film. So I kind of gave that a shot. And at the end of the day, it just wasn't very well written. Like, the dialogue was a bit... Right. I mean, it probably did well enough. I just I was too old, I guess, or I was too, whatever, removed from it. But to watch in, like, little small bursts, that was a great concept. And that was uh, about four or five years ago. So, you know, they're still continuing to do it. They're still adding layer after layer, you know. So, it, yeah, I imagine... That probably yeah, our children. If we have children, or you know, the next generation, will we're not going to have children then. Not probably really. not. Probably not. So yeah, probably they they will. You know, they'll they'll be having their conversations about their own. You know, as as kids today have their version of Star Trek or Star Wars that they mm-hmm. like because it's the most recent. You know, uh, or you know, there are kids today who watch the Looney Tunes show, and they look back and think how hacky <laughs> the old nineteen fifties Warner Brothers cartoons were. You know, so it's a uh, those children must be stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we were incredibly lucky to have some time with uh, Nancy Beeman. She's an animator, she's an author, teacher now. She teaches at Sheridan uh, in uh, Canada. It's in Toronto, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Canada. You're, I don't know whereabouts in Canada. But, uh, it's, she, it's close by. It's yeah. a few hours away, Toronto. Yeah. Nancy started her career long ago. Uh, she was in the first graduating class of the uh, CalArts character animation course, which obviously gives her the authority to a bit of um, credibility there I, I hear that the CalArts guys are doing quite well well when you when you were in, in school with um, John Laster and Brad Bird etc mm. uh, this is the calibre of, uh, of animator she is she's an actual she's a fantastic animator if you're looking at films that she's done she did uh, Billy Bones in Treasure mm-hmm. Planet which I think is one of the most overlooked Disney films it's, it's good fun let's pretend I've never seen Treasure Planet and I have no idea who Billy Bones is mm-hmm. maybe you could you could give me a, a little background I'm just taking on the role of, of maybe an audience member who's yeah there. okay well, <clears throat> Billy Bones sets up the story in Treasure Island the original story by uh, Robert Louis Stevenson he's the MacGuffin he delivers the map to Jim Hawkins and he sets the story in motion he's only in it for a little while but uh, Nancy got to work on the Disney version of, mm-hmm. uh, of Billy Bones, who is like a space monster. He's like a fish. He's like a turtle. He's like a dinosaur. And in the interview... Uh, Gotta see this movie. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's... A, it's I mean, this is why it's overlooked. Sounds mental. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great look at a classic story, which, uh-huh. which Disney have a... Oh, Rose, great at putting out. Is that just like mannerisms, or is it like actually kind of a future where he looks like he looks like a he's a monster? And for a a very polite lady to 
mm-hmm. to animate this big hulking beast. Yeah. It just goes to show about the, the power of animation performance, which obviously she's she's very well clued up on. Excellent. I'm eager to hear it. Yeah, let's, let's punch listen. it up. Well, should we start at the beginning then, really? You were awarded the uh, Disney Family Scholarship, uh, which sort of propelled you into this, this world of animation. But uh, before before that, were there any events in your youth that uh, that led you towards the world of animation? Or was it always a career of choice for yourself? I'm a fairly late bloomer, as animators go. I only became interested in the medium when I was about 16. And this could take the entire interview, but there were a remarkable series of coincidences that got me into it. The first is an English teacher who assigned a media project, which is what they would do back then. And I decided to draw my film simply because I could draw and I had a small camera. So I made a cut paper animated film and it got me interested. My father then went to a little place he used to go and buy sandwiches and hang out with his friends, like a little local pool and bar. And he was was talking about it. And one of his friends said, well, I work for an optical printing company in New York, and my boss is female. Why don't you bring your daughter in? So I went in. I saw an Oxbury for the first time. Then they said, there's a fellow up the street who gives animation lessons. His name is Ray Setti, Sunflower Films. I met Mr. Setti, took lessons from him. I was 16 years old, his youngest student. Decided I really wanted to do this. So I apply and get into New York University. Then here comes where that long arm of coincidence is ripped out of its socket. <laughs> My high school film teacher, Mr. Ed Roberts, had connections at Zagreb Studios in Yugoslavia. And when they came to do a show, a retrospective in New York, they stopped off at our high school first in New Jersey to show the films. Here's where the coincidence really goes crazy. They had their entire East Coast office for Disney Educational Media in my hometown. So they came to the show. They asked Mr. Roberts, do you have any seniors interested in animation? And so I wound up getting a scholarship from the Disney family, Roy Disney and Edna Disney, to go to Arts and uh, decline the New York University. So that is an unlikely series of coincidences. So for CalArts, I was in the first class of this character animation program. It had been around, actually, that had been Jules Engel's program first. Famous, famous experimental program. But the Disney uh, studio was restaffing and wanted to train new people to come in, and they wanted, uh, I guess, a more structured system. So they set up character animation under Jack Hanna in 1975, and I was in the class as one of the last people added to it. So there you are. Wow. So you, you were sort of like just, just jumping on there right at the very end. I and Mike Sedino were the last two added, and everyone else apparently had been on Disney's... Uh, mailing lists for years. They've been corresponding with people at the studio or were known to them or had applied and were on a kind of, let's call these people. But I was, the, I think, the only one who had never heard of the place. And, uh, <laughs> I actually applied to the school after getting accepted and getting the scholarship and then saw it. So I went did everything backwards. Wow. I mean, I wouldn't call it an amazing piece of luck because obviously they didn't take anyone. Your work is obviously fantastic, but what an amazing sort of path to lead to get to the famous CalArts character animation program. In your class, you had people like John Musker, Brad Bird, uh, John Lassiter, which few people may well have heard of. But were there any other sort of standout artists in your class? Could you tell that these people were destined for the sort of careers that they led since? Did you feel yourself that this is it? This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Well, everyone in the class was very strong because they had to be. 
And a couple of names you're not mentioning here. I would not, could not possibly talk about that first class without mentioning Jerry Rees, who was, I think, one of the top drafts from there, a fantastic animator, even in his freshman year. And also Daryl Van Sitters, who now runs his own studio, Renegade Productions. Notice I'm not mentioning any girls' names. There was Leslie Margolin, the only other girl in the class. I think there was one other girl who left very early. We had a 33% dropout rate in the first year because the program was tough. And it was unforgiving because our teachers were professional people. At the time, they did things you can't do now. They didn't have to be really nice to the students to keep us there. If they didn't like something you were doing, they told you. And by the end of the uh, first year, I believe I was the only girl in the class. That was rough too, but you had to take it. You had to suck it up. You were treated much like everybody else. And I will never forget my life drawing teacher, Elmer Plummer, coming over to me and saying, you don't draw as well as the boys. Wow. Today that would get him fired. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you this. It made me furious, but not at him. I will tell you quite honestly, I knew he was right. So I went and drew 10 pages in my sketchbook every day. I studied anatomy like there was no tomorrow. I was absolutely determined to improve, and I did. Sounds like, a, uh, like an animation boot camp. Very much so. But, of course, not everybody was as rough as the design teacher, Bill Moore, who was brutal. Hmm. who would swear at you, who told me my work was, well, he told me it was not acceptable in the most basic four-letter terms. And I used to get sick, physically sick. You know, again, I knew he was right. Do you think there's, there's certain lessons there that animation students are missing out on nowadays, do you think? It's just a little bit sugar-coated nowadays, would you say? Not quite. I do mention Bill Moore to my students. I say, you know, he was a great teacher, but it was not the methods you could use today. I preferred Ken O'Connor's way who would say, well, why don't you try this? And that was a nice way of saying this isn't working. And only once did Ken, who had this droll Australian accent, ever use Bill Moore-type language to me. I had a layout that was, well, perspective was not my strong point. And he goes, no, Nancy, the goddamned door does not vanish to that particular vanishing point. <laughs> the goddamned vanishing point is over here. And the goddamn, and by now we're both laughing. And he goes, I'm sorry for swearing. I said, that's all right. I should have known this Western. Ken was a doll. He was a wonderful teacher, wonderful man. We became good friends. I was friends also with T. He long after I graduated. And T. was just the exact opposite. He, would, he wouldn't give you detailed instructions. That led to some uh, confusion with some people who liked to just go do this and that's that. No, T. wanted you to think. So that was actually one of the harder classes. But I, uh, I found it the best training I could have had at the time. And the different teaching styles... Well, I'd prefer to go with C and Ken Styles rather than Bill Moore's, but <laughs> just to show you how things have changed, there were no, there was no question of you arguing with the teacher. I don't think anyone ever did. They had an influence on your brand of teaching going forward now, you'd say? I would say, and of course, I've also worked in training programs at studios. I was working with Bill Matthews at Disney's many years ago, training uh, CGI people coming in, so I've actually been doing it a long time before I became a professor. I was always in supervisory positions because I can work with the people and explain to them what, actually explain what needs to be done on the project, what needs to be fixed in rather quick time, which people, which no, people noted very quickly. Uh, on my very first job for Jack Zander, he said immediately, he gets right to the point of the problem right there, which is useful if you've got a huge class. I can tell yeah. people this might work better if you move this panel here or if you take this tack on your story. So, yeah, I'd say it helps to have directorial skills when teaching, but I've always felt, like when I had my unit in England, let them have a chance if they want to try something, say the in-betweener wants to try a system, give them a chance, 
The worst that happens is it gets done over as long as you're making photos. Give them bonuses, little treats every now and again. It definitely helps. So you were training up uh, CGI guys. I was trained to, t to teach them animation. I should explain, I don't teach the program. Obviously, I could not do that. Hmm. But at uh, Disney's at the time, there was definitely an understanding that teaching animation and teaching the program are two very different things. So the people coming in were already familiar with Maya. But what they had to do was learn how to animate. In, in a Disney style, and I had exercises that had been designed, and the figures had already been modeled and rigged, and they were quite uh, quite nice, if you ask me. And I generally just said, when I also was reviewing their life drawings, I will never forget something that one of the uh, professors told me. I discovered that one person who had rather weak life drawing, and whom I told had very weak life drawing, actually had never had a pencil in their hand in their lives. They were, they were technical directors. Wow. So I went, uh, yeah, I went to my uh, overseer, not not Bill, it's someone else, and I said, "Can't I give them a sphere or a cube or something to model or texture? Because they've never drawn a, a nude human before." Is and they said, "How are they supposed to rig a human being if they don't know the anatomy?" So I agreed that was a good point. That person went back and redid their entire portfolio and and passed. So important lessons there, would you say, about the relationship between sort of a 2D look at animation and, and the, the feel for, for drawing and, and artistry and the meeting of technology, would you say? Oh, very definitely. I'd say any good CGI animator will tell you that drawing is still very important, particularly if they are designing their own characters. But even if you aren't, the, when I was last at Pixar, that was about uh, 2003, I talked to Joe Raft. John Lasseter and Brad Bird who were all there. I said, do you guys still thumbnail your animation before you get it on the screen? And they go, hell yes, as a unit. Wow. There are plugins now where you can actually import your thumbnails and work on paper and then do that. That's still the best way to work out your time. And I find working with a student who is working in Maya to be no different than anything else. Uh, you, uh, tell them, do your thumbnails. And of course, we're using slightly less advanced plugins here. Scan the thumbnails, time your scene, and then you will be able to t animate it in the uh, Maya without uh, too many corrections. It's still easier to th do the thumbnails first. That sounds sort of reassuring. I mean, I'm not au fait with, uh, with Maya and, and 3D animation myself. I'm more 2D. But to think that um, the software is allowing these essential practices to be incorporated is, is quite reassuring. Yeah, well, even if you don't have the plugin, you can still do a test with a simple, like you can even do it in After Effects if you want to. You can do it with anything, uh, get Flipbook. The main thing is, is work out your timing rough, and it's still easier to do that. Now, so there are people who don't, but I have found the best ones I, I know do this system. And it really depends, I suppose, if you're trained on paper, you're used to that, but I do know that the CGI people have benefited when I had them do it. When I was at uh, Rochester Institute of Technology, I had a great many students working in CGI. They were, they were not basically a uh, paper-driven program. And I had one project where they had to go from start to finish in 10 weeks. So we had story in the first week, character design in the second, and I wanted to see very rough storyboard and thumbnails in week three, and the rest was spent animating. So naturally the characters had to be very simple, but we had prize-winning films come out of that. It was really amazing how, how good some of them are. So the sooner you lock down your story and design, the better your film is and the more likely you are to finish it. So rather not you can do it, is that you should do it. 
it's like anything else. If you have nothing to say, well, you'll be just moving things around, won't you? You can do an exercise, but it won't be a film. But I find I gravitated towards story from the very beginning simply because it used, I noticed it tended to be the, the loop point of the film. I also found it more interesting than, you know, animation was fun, but story and design and development was the most creative part of the movie because that's when everything was possible. Moving on to character, within your career you've had the rather unique privilege of working on both Donald and Daffy Duck. And on the page, these two characters, they may seem quite similar and, and they're often compared. But what are the sort of subtle nuances in character that you have to capture in both uh, that the audience may not understand that help distinguish the character besides, obviously, the vocal work? Oh, well, the design is clearly quite different. I've always enjoyed animating both ducks. But there is a notable difference in the animation styles between the two studios. And this is something... It's funny, I, I have uh, had several directors tell me, I want Bob Clampett, Bugs Bunny, circa 1943, or I want uh, John Sibley's Goofy, same period. And I can switch gears and change animation styles for that. So the Disney style for Donald, it's, a, uh, it's very fluid animation. It's quite beautifully phrased animation. But the Warner style is more, uh, I would say, a bit more snappy, but it's not the pop and pop into a pose and holds them that people fondly believe nowadays is the Warner style. It's just as full as Disney. It has slightly different emphasis on poses. Certain things you would do with Daffy you would never do with Donald, even though they both have bad tempers. Daffy can be distorted, and one interesting thing about him, no matter what you do to Daffy, it always looks like him. We did a film uh, at the Warners with Greg Ford and Ronnie Scheib writing called Invasion of the Bunny Snatchers, in which carrots from outer space possess Daffy, Sam, and Elmer and turn them into rather badly animated facsimiles of themselves. And we had a contest as to who could do the worst animation, and I won. But I, I, had, <laughs> most, I had most of the Daffy scenes. And the Daffy models were horrendous. They were cleaned up with magic marker. They were with different parts of the bodies left behind. But no matter what we did to him, it still read as Daffy. Wow. Whereas Elmer Fudd could, could start to turn into a bad imitation of Charlie Brown, Sam was also always recognizable. Daffy, no matter what you do, you always have him look like himself. Donald, very precise designs and also different periods. He, he evolved more over time than, than Daffy did. My personal favorite design of Donald is about 1938, uh, a film like Donald's Lucky Day. Absolutely gorgeous design on the duck. And the eyes are on the sides of his head. Mr. Duck Steps Out, another fabulous cartoon from that time. With the eyes on the side of the head, it makes it very easy to draw Donald. You can lock the eyes in on the beak. The eyes move more forward, and this also happened to Bugs, Bugs Bunny and Daffy. They move more forward as, as, as time goes on. So again, talking about the time periods. To come to the 50s, there is actually the animation in the Warner cartoons becomes more based on strong poses. And more stylized, and some, a lot of this in Jones's unit. So I once asked Chuck, when you have the characters zip out of the frame and leave a cloud of dust, did you do that for artistic reasons or to save money? And he said, at first, it was artistic. In other words, later they had to do it, but he was able to make it creative enough so that you were still amused and entertained by it. Why is and it? that's the sort of thing animation does well, is that the animation, for example, in a Warner cartoon, is just as well analyzed. The action analysis is just as good as anything in Disney, but it's a totally different take on the animation. Whereas Disney gravitated more towards realistic interpretation, 
Warner's got more stylized. And that was only partially to do with the budgets. It is an artistic choice. When you have the witch in Broomstick Bunny laugh insanely, hover in the air, and then zip out leaving a whirling pile of bobby pins, it's only possible in animation. And it's grand to see CGI films starting to develop a graphic sense instead of imitating realism. The earliest, some of the earliest CGI work I saw was depressing in that it attempted to recreate live action, whereas we are clearly superior to it. We can do anything. We are not restricted by the performance of an actor or by the weight of the human body or by the laws of physics. Have you seen the trailer for uh, Hotel Transylvania? That looks a little bit more... Um the certain silhouettes and things used in there seem a little bit more a bit more graphic. Have you seen that? I've seen the trailer, yes, and I would say that looks like it's go. It's definitely one of the examples I point out that the modern films are going more graphic. Despicable Me was another excellent example of this, but one that has a great blend that I thought was one of the best ones I've seen in years was How to Train Your Dragon, because how on earth do you perform a dragon? How do you find live action reference for a dragon? You can see that they use different animals in combination hmm. for the dragons, and that is exactly what animation does. I write about that at great length in uh, animated performance because it definitely helps to put different qualities that feel like the animal rather than a literal imitation of it. That's what animation does best. And one studio I write about that I feel has not received its, its due, its credit for being really innovative, is the Max Fleischer Studio. They regularly had backgrounds and inanimate objects in their pictures come to life. And again, animation does that superbly. And why not do more of it? Pixar got on that bandwagon immediately for the same reason. At the time they made Toy Story, computers could not really render certain textures. They were best at plastic, so why not make your entire cast out of plastic mm. or ceramic? It's a great idea. Play to the strengths of your medium. Also, everybody in Toy Story, except for the dog and the, and the kids, were inanimate objects, which is something that animation brings to life. That's what animation means. So I'm not suggesting that everybody do it, but I think the fantasy element is something I would definitely encourage, especially in students. Instead of doing a human being and trying to imitate live action and recording yourself, think about what happens if you have... The little bouncing ball you're animating has actually got a personality. It actually doesn't want to be bounced. You might have some fun with it. Mm. I did a workshop at Sheridan last summer where we had an inanimate object assignment. I'm doing it again, actually, in about two weeks. And I got some wonderful, wonderful tests. One of my favorites was uh, a hospital scene on a kitchen sink. There's a sick plate with tomato sauce on it. The doctor is a sponge and has a knife for a tongue dispressor, and the nurse is a bottle of dishwashing liquid, and her little cap is the top of the bottle. Wow. That was a student who came up with that idea in about, oh, about two hours. Another one had a bowl of milk luring chocolate chip cookies to their doom. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the sort of creativity that I think animation should, you know, there should be more animated things like that. And granted, I'm, just, I'm comparing tests running several seconds with feature films, the feature films are supposed to take you somewhere you haven't been, whether they're live or animated. An animated particular can take you to different worlds. So why on earth imitate this one? Well, yeah, you can look out the window and see this one. You can interpret it. You can make a fantasy version of it or have something that could happen. It's not about what is. Animation's about what could be. 
Wonderful. Do you have a favourite, I'll say, actor that mean animation or animation style or like a method of acting within animation? I mean, would it be in inanimate objects? Would it be uh, certain characters? I mean, does it really depend on the style? I like anything that is creative and imaginative. I'm not particularly partial to any style. I am a big fan, for example, of the early UPA cartoons, and I'm delighted that they're finally out on DVD. They are beautiful. If you haven't seen that one, I would get it. It's called Jolly Frolics. Mm -hmm. I, I like very stylized work as well. I like independent. I like experimental. I, I can't say I have a particular favorite. I love Joanna Quinn, but I also love Simon Tofield. They work in diametrically opposite styles, but they're both doing things that could be, not things that are. True. You're a big fan of Simon Tofield. Oh, a huge fan of Simon Tofield. I absolutely love his work. How about your own work? I mean, do you have a particular favorite project that you've been involved in? I enjoy most of my projects. That's one reason I traveled so much. I tended to go to take jobs that I was interested in. It also gave me a chance to see the world. So I can tell you about ones that were interesting in different respects. First of all, it was great to train in commercials. My first job was in a commercial studio at a time when a great many were made. You had a different style in most every commercial. You had very, very precise deadlines, but you had this type of animation you would do with features. So I thought that was excellent training. Then working on some of the television specials I did, I have to tell you my all-time favorite was the Peanuts character Spike. I worked on a TV special called It's the Girl in the Red Truck, Charlie Brown. And Spike does not talk. Spike is a pantomime actor. That's very rare in animation. Spike is a little beagle that lives in the desert and wears a hat, a little like Buster Keaton. I'm a Keaton fan, so I put some of Keaton's moves on him. And I love that character. But also love working with Donald, Daffy, and, uh, and Mickey in uh, a lot of work I did for Disney in the uh, a lot of work for Epcot, which sadly I can't see anymore. I don't know where they are. These films may have disappeared. But the, the fact is, there's many, many other things I've done besides the feature work, which can't be viewed anymore. Maybe it's just as well. Uh, for Warner Brothers, I, I love just about everything I did for them. And getting into Disney features, I think my most favorite projects, well, Disney Television's Goofy movie. Goofy's a great character, fun to work with. I really enjoyed working on Hercules and uh, The Treasure Planet was a big challenge because it was a very different style of animation than I usually do. Then I also have worked in Europe, of course. I worked for Steven Spielberg in London on American Tale. And I think that's probably technically the best animation I did at that time. It's a nice performance on Miss Kitty. And I worked a lot in Germany. And that was a real eye-opener because the Germans would do certain material that we couldn't do in the US or England and it was very liberating. And even though the style was different from what I was used to, I said, how can this thing act? It turned out to be a delightful experience with a lot of strong performances and very strong story. So it really, I liked all of them. You worked as the lead animator with uh, John Musk and Ron Clements on Billy Bones and uh, BEN on Treasure Planet. I'd say it's one of the overlooked Disney features, but it's it's an excellent reimagining of the classic tale. And obviously it's something that the two directors wanted to do for a very long time. Was there an amount of excitement on that project? And, and how do you go about putting together a character such as Billy Bones? I mean, he's, he's a big mismatch of turtles, dinosaurs, amphibians, and anything disgusting to make this hulking monster. Was this your own vision, or was the creation process sort of regimented a little bit by the directors? Oh, it's hard it could be called regimented. I, I should tell you, that was the second picture I'd worked on with uh, John and Ron. 
and it's a, always been a pleasure with work with them. They have I've known John since we were in school together, and I've known Ron for about longer than I'd care to mention, but <laughs> well before we started working. So I'll compare the two pictures because that would probably be fairer. Mm-hmm. The director, of course, is always in charge. That's why they're directing. But they do often have production designers who will come up with these rough sketches, and then the supervising animators will take them. It is a group project. It's not something you do all by yourself. On Hercules, we had at first Susan Nichols as the production designer. They brought in Gerald Scarf just before I started on the picture, and Scarf was to go over our designs and make them, as we called it, scarfing. So that was another country heard from. Gerald was a pleasure to work with, very easy man to work with. But, of course, he too had to do what the directors asked. And we that's uh, one example of how to work on development. In the case of Treasure Planet, we did not have one particular overriding sense of design. In fact, they were still feeling for the look of the picture. And I was given originally a few characters to work with, and drawings were given me by Harold Sieperman, who had been on doing development work before I started on the picture. So I worked with Harold Sieperman and I think one or two Peter DeSev drawings. But then there was one I th- that I think DeSev did, which had a horizontal stance on the character, and uh, the directors both said, go this direction. We'd like it to be like a turtle. So I said, well, okay. Then I started researching dinosaurs from China. They had an exhibit in Los Angeles about that time. Weird new specimens they'd never found before. So I worked in some elements of that, and I put in a jaw of a sockeye salmon, which when the fish is spawning, if the jaw deteriorates, warps, and gave Billy a, a double jaw. He has two hinges. So I had some fun with him, and also researched the costume. This is where it gets really funny. I, I couldn't draw the hat. Now, of course... It's a difficult shape, a lot of curving figure eights on a, on a big hat, those 18th century cocked hats. So John Pomeroy, who was an experienced historical painter specializing in Revolutionary War scenes, was working on another picture, and I went over to him. I said, John, could you please tell me where I might buy a high-cocked hat? And he told me there was a place that would make them, and I bought the hat. So I put it on a small mannequin in my office and drew the hat. So Billy's hat actually exists. I still have it. Oh. Then Glenn Keane came over and said, I want one too, where do I get it? So I gave him the name and he bought a hat for silver. So I actually did a uh, cartoon of Bones being a haberdasher <laughs> to the other <laughs> characters. It's tough, it's a lot easier when somebody models it for you, but yes, it's possible to draw these things if you understand the shapes, and that's really necessary to have a model. I sculpted a maquette of Bones with a smaller version of the high cocked hat that I could use, but the real one was there for the actual uh, turning. So reference is important then. If you don't have a particular strength in drawing something, and reference is, is important. Anybody would have needed that hat because the shape is not what you think. It's not, for example, a simple cap with the edges turned up. There were, in the case of the high cocked hat, a very large front flap that has three distinct planes. And so that one needed to have a model. I definitely did a better job with having the hat there. So did everyone. And then Glenn Key needed one too. So I don't don't think you would accuse him of not being able to draw. As for action research, I've always followed Frank Thomas's rule. Look at it once, then put it away and never look at it again. Right. Rather than overlooking something. Is that the the lesson there? Well, that's, remember, a hat is an object. It's not a performance. I've always worked from memory, sketchbook notes. If I have to, say, make something move like an actor or actress, as has occasionally happened, I have looked at footage of the actor and actress and done sketches only. I've never had 
say, a download that I copied. We did shoot live action for a lot of Hercules, and I, my characters, of course, weren't in them because they're completely fantasy. They don't even have bodies. But for some of the scenes with the Thebans, there was action on Hercules that was filmed. And the characters were so bizarrely designed, they don't have human proportions. So we simply could use them for a bit of timing, but that's about it. I saw Hercules at the cinemas when I was a kid, but I, I haven't seen it for around about a year. I can't picture any sort of live action. I'm usually quite quite good at spotting this sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, the style really did mask that, didn't it? It did. It was very broad in all of the characters. In the UK, we obviously love Gerald Scarf and his uh, his take on characters. Oh, yes. he's He was, again, a pleasure to work with. And it was a very interesting design style to work with. So, um Looking ahead to the future, with regards to performance and uh, the sort of dizzying array of new technologies that come around and films, obviously I'm not comparing uh, like the likes of Tintin and Avatar to animated performance, but the public seem to fall into the trap of putting them both under the same banner. Are we forgetting any sort of vital aspects to animated performance that we can sort of incorporate going forward? People working in 3D CGI, uh, maybe even stop motion. What's funny is I don't believe it's the public that's confusing them at all. The public goes to see a movie. The public goes to see a story. I don't think the public was out there saying, wow, Avatar was a great animated picture. I don't think anyone in the audience was saying that. I believe it was being said more by animators. And actually, that's the reason why I wrote my second book. I was very disappointed to see Avatar even discussed as an animated picture by animators. It's perfectly obvious that it is a live-action movie with special effects. Yes, animators worked on it. You know what? I worked on a documentary film. It does not make me a documentary filmmaker. I simply provided artwork for it. So, yes, it takes animators to work with the motion capture. But, in the end, it is a live-action movie with special effects. And Tintin was, well, I don't want to get too, too involved in this, but to me it is another live-action movie with animated special effects. It's like putting a man in a gorilla suit and saying it's a nature movie. Right. It's not. It's a man in a gorilla suit performing a gorilla, and the audience is not confused. Sure. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about Sheridan. I mean, what's... what's... Certainly can. I will tell you that Sheridan is the oldest animation school, character animation school in the world. It is four years older than Kingdom Arts. It has a terrific reputation. And it only recently went to a four-year degree program, whereas Cal Arts was always a four-year program. And we have some very exceptional students. It's a, it's a very tough course. So even though our teaching styles have changed, the requirements the students have to get their degree are far, I wouldn't say tougher, but they're just as tough as what we went through, but in a different, a different area. They have to do a great deal to get that degree. Hmm. And, and I don't suppose you'd be able to pick out any sort of notable films without mentioning them all, but what, what are we to look out for on festival circuits and the like? Well, we have had films at Cannes and also the, uh, at, at Annecy. I don't know about this year's crop, but I do know that we have had a film called Sea Block. That was at Cannes Film Festival about two years ago. We have been encouraging students to enter film festivals because the students own their films and they do it themselves, but school does not enter them, which I think we might want to do a little more often. The best ones from Sheridan will compare with the best ones from anywhere else. And I was very pleased to see third-year projects, which are group projects. They're as good as anything you see coming out of the Globalines. 
Hmm. And the Gogoland students are far more experienced. They are not undergraduates. They already have an art degree. These kids are sometimes 19 or 20 years old, and they're doing some pretty incredible stuff. Is that, from a, from a student point of view, what, I mean, is there a difference between group work and defining them individuals' individual skills and working solo on a project? Would you say there was a better way of uh, putting together a project? I think we've got it just about right, because most animators do have to work with other people on a project. Mm. So what we have is first and second year is acquiring skills, third year refining some skills and also doing a group project and developing story for the senior project, which will be solo. And I think that's a good format because if you graduate and you can't work with anybody, that you're not much use to anyone. It's true that a number of people are taking a look at Simon Toker, they're working for themselves, they use him as an example. But rationally, not, not everyone's going to be able to do that. Not all of them will have the creativity of the ideas. Or the discipline. It takes a lot more discipline to sit down in your house and work than to go to a studio at a regular hour. So we give them basically a microcosm of what's out there. Both working in a studio situation, which would be the group project. And I do a group project too, by the way, in my second year storyboard class. And that one gets them prepared for their third year. And I think it's helped because the third year projects seem to be getting stronger since, since that group project was instituted. It does help to be able to do more than one thing. To use my own example, I bless the memory of Ken O'Connor every time I do a book because he taught me how to stage and lay out things. Also, Bill Moore for design. I learned stuff that I never did in a studio. I never was, except in commercials, doing layouts. I would never do it at features. But it was sufficient to allow me to design a book and design book illustrations and do book illustrations. It was enabled, I was able to apply the skills in another venue. Likewise, our students can work in graphic novels. I talked to one third-year student who is, is uh, they have to do an internship. He is doing an internship with a comic, with a graphic artist. He's doing comic book work, which I think will be uh, where he's going to go. So they get the tools and they get to finish the job, to quote Mr. Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So uh, cross-disciplinary is there. I'd say that it's very strong. Talking about uh, Ken O'Connor there, on another podcast, you mentioned that you actually have had access to his, his sort of book that he was going to write. Is that right? Yes, and I've been sworn never to make a copy, which I've never done. Oh, right. Well, I wasn't asking for a copy, but I was asking of the possibility of that being your third book, maybe working with that. I doubt it because I'm not Ken, and I'm again, I would say you're going to have, for example, a layout book published by uh, Scott Capel, who is teaching at Sheridan. His book is, it looks fantastic. He is far more qualified to write this than I would be. So I would say let, let him do his book and I do mine. I don't know if I want to write anymore, to tell you the truth. I think I want to get back into making films again. A lot of, well, I would say a lot. Some of my colleagues are moaning about paper. I'm more than happy to go digital. I didn't like the first Cintiqs. I love the new ones. So yeah. I can't wait to start doing digital work and putting it online. So uh, could you give us a little idea as to what's, what's worrying around your mind then? What's, what's the future then in animation for, for Nancy Beeman? I can't predict my own future. I didn't <laughs> like films again. It depends on a lot of things. First off, there is a second edition of Prepare to Board coming out that I have to finish. Once that's done, then I can start thinking about story films for my own things. But I'm, uh, I'm also moving house, so I have a bit on my plate right now. <laughs> wow, just a few things. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very, very much for your time today, Nancy. Yeah, it's very sweet of you. And uh, well, thank you so much, honey. It's been such a pleasure. Nancy Beeman there, 
animation veteran, uh, also a great author in her own right. I have a couple of her books. I think Animated Performance is really kind of an essential read, I think, if you're into the character animation side of things as an animator and you want to develop your skills, hone them a little more. It doesn't have a lot of concession for someone who hasn't done animation at all. But for someone who has that kind of foundation and wants to really kind of refine the craft, it, it's, it's sort of an essential uh, text, I'd say. Yeah, I would stick it. I mean, it's an easy comparison, but most people pick up Richard Williams' book, and rightly they sh- and they should rightly so pick up mm. uh, Richard Williams' book. But it, what book goes, is that? No. <laughs> if you if you listen to this podcast, that obscure tome. If you, that no one said. But I'll just go to say that Nancy's is uh, it's good on that. It's, it's like an extension of that. Yeah. If um, Richard Williams' book is high school, then this is college. You know, yeah. it's. I mean, as good as any book is, just subscribing to one as your Bible is not really the best no. because if you, then you're, you're not going to be able to really kind of explore who you are if you're just getting one sort of influence directly onto you. And I think, you know, that Richard Williams book and the accompanying lectures, they're, they're very, very sophisticated and they're very, you know, there is a reason why they are considered essential. I think once I started animating, it just materialized in my apartment. Like, I don't even remember buying it. Is there something that all animators have? You know, it's like um, the Gideon's Bible in hotel rooms. Yeah, there. yeah. <laughs> just open a drawer and oh, okay, I guess I own this book now. May as well leaf through it. But yeah, I would say that yeah, animated performance definitely one of the uh, as far as the the textbooks on improving your skills. If you're one of those people who's aware that there is room for improvement, definitely worth a look. Also, um, prepare to board. Uh huh. And that's the pre-production storyboards, storyboards, things like that. You'll you find um, her cat features very heavily in the illustrations. Uh, uh-huh. Cat Gizmo. And if you did hear any purring or uh, bells ringing or anything like that in that interview, that was her cat. Uh-huh. That wasn't me purring. Honest. So last month we did our first squiggly podcast competition to win two Barry Purvis books on stop motion. Uh, we're doing the same thing this episode. We're going to be giving away both of Nancy Beeman's books. That's Prepare to Board through Focal Press and Animated Performance from AVA Books. So for those of you who were listening attentively during the interview, this competition's multiple choice question is, at what educational institution did Nancy Beeman study? Was it A, CalArts, B, Sheridan, or C, the University of Sunderland? All fine institutions. I, I will take your word for that. So just go to the website, find the podcast page, click A, B, or C, and you could be winning the books. Excellent stuff. How about we reveal the winner of the last competition, eh? Yes, you might remember the last competition was to win Barry Purvis's books. Now, those who listened very carefully would have known that the answer to the question was Achilles, and the winner is Dean Bycroft. So congratulations, Dean. You've won both books. So in the last episode, we threw down the animation gauntlet once again in our versus challenge, and it was Tom and Jerry versus Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. Mm-hmm. A battle of two people battling. Yes, yes. A clash of the uh, dueling anthropomorphoids, if you will. So let's analyze such a such a clash. I mean, what camp would you say you're in? Uh, it's a very difficult one. Um, when I was a kid, my granddad. Uh, loved Tom and Jerry and he still loves them mm-hmm. and I really enjoy Roadrun and Wile E. Coyote it's a pretty similar relationship isn't it that they've both got although both the protagonists 
always just end up mutilating each other. Hmm. But I think Jerry's got more of a consciousness to him, that a bit more character to him. Hmm. So I would, uh, I would say that if I was going to venture into into one camp, and it's very, it's, it's very close, I'd say Tom and Jerry. Right. What about yourself? I think overall there is a, a strange, like intangible bond. I feel to the whole environment and atmosphere of the Roadrunner cartoons. There was just something about what that represents from my childhood. And a lot of it was, you know, watching, you know, these these cartoons at a very young age with my father. And, and then as I got older, being more and more a fan of, of that kind of mean-spirited humor. That was what the Looney Tunes really kind of, you know, had set them apart from, you know, Disney and, and whatnot, was the malice. The watching people's pain you know, watching suffering and how funny that is, because it is a funny thing to watch, <laughs> you know, done right. And the fact that it was, you know, deserve it, you know, it was, you didn't put the characters that didn't deserve it through pain so much. Um, the fact of the matter is this was a, a you know, predator animal, uh, as was, you know, the sort of Tom and Jerry relationship, you know, he wanted to find this roadrunner and kill it and presumably eat it, which I can't imagine would have been a very satisfying conclusion because if you've ever seen a roadrunner they do not look succulent there's, there's not much meat on them no it's terrible you know what a waste of there must be other you know th things in the desert slower things in the desert slower at least yeah. yeah yeah there was a bit of personality in the roadrunner but it was f far less frequently glimpsed occasionally you'd get these little moments where the roadrunner would just be a complete douchebag you know he just like he knew what the score was and he kind of gave the coyote these sort of looks and I like that you know the coyote never actually went through any you know wildlife documentary style uh, tactics it was always mail order it was always you know spending a lot of his finances and a lot of his time and energy into putting something together and then to just have it completely blow up in his face and never learn from it that was the other thing and this is something that a quality of, of people that you know you or I will pr probably deal with in real life of Someone who constantly messes up and things just get worse and worse for them. And there is this part of their brain that just can't make that connection of like, you know, maybe I should just stop doing this and it won't backfire in my face. I don't know whether that was uh, the intent of the cartoon, but that I think serves quite well analogously. You know, it's a nice little study of human suffering, but the suffering we create for ourselves, you know. It speaks um, for the difference between Roadrunner and Tom and Jerry is that in a Roadrunner cartoon, like you say, it's all based on, on these wacky ideas of what you get from the latest Acme catalogue and, mm -hmm. and all the, the catapults and the, the wingsuits and all the things that go wrong and, and the rockets and, and things. And Which he never thinks, why don't I just subscribe to a different catalogue? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like some sort of gun catalogue or something, maybe. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe a supplier of a yeah, BA, military. BAE systems or something like that, <laughs> yeah. But I think Tom and Jerry are a bit more malleable as characters because in one instance you can have uh, Tom chasing Jerry around the kitchen, which I would say is the standard Tom and Jerry fare. And then the next one you can have uh, Tom in a concert hall Playing the piano and, and, and Jerry, which is my favourite one, the Cat Concerto, uh -huh. um, while 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 Jerry's dodging the keys and things. Mm. Or you can have them as musketeers, or you can have them as and and Road Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote don't do that. They're always Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. Maybe that's the problem with the new cartoons that I've got, the new Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote ones, because the ones in, in the new the Looney Tunes show, they'll have him like they'll have Roadrunner being a ninja. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like the 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 repetition of of always being in the desert. I think it it only becomes an issue if you watch like lots in a row. You know, um, but you could deal with that for you know five minutes at a time. Mm. Um, but yeah, they really never would leave that setting. And when you have that established, and then you do something new with it, it's it's a little like you could make. And I, I'm sure they do like new Tom and Jerry's where they're you know in space or or you know in the Wild West or whatever. You know, they they could probably do that because that was something that was an element of the show originally. That kind of straying from you know that one house or wherever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, within the general Looney Tunes universe, they would do that. You know, you'd have Bugs Bunny or Daffy Duck or wherever, you know, they could be anywhere in any sort of given episode. Um, and in some episodes, they'd, they'd know each other and in some they wouldn't, you know, they'd be meeting for the first time. What I found, yeah, I, I have seen, I've only seen glimpses of the, the new Looney Tunes. I mean, what's your overall <laughs> summation of that? From what I've seen, they do kind of well we'll talk about uh, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck then mm -hmm. they're very malleable characters as well I mean Duck and Muck is a perfect example of how at the beginning where he leaps out of the castle and he's a musketeer yeah then all of a sudden they paint a snowy scene in the background and, and Daffy thinks alright okay so it's a skiing adventure mm -hmm. so he gets his skis on and then all of a sudden it's Hawaii okay so it's a Hawaiian adventure I can, I can roll with it I'll do it's that pretty that's adaptive. not a problem very adaptive yeah in the new in the new Looney Tunes adventures Bugs and Daffy are roommates and it's very sort of uh, like sitcom-y, right? sitcom yeah, yeah. And, and you don't really want that out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. If you nail Bugs and Daffy down to one thing, then it would be the duck season, rabbit season, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, pronoun trouble. Pronoun, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're, the they're, they're, they're the best ones for Bugs and Daffy, I think. And yeah. Elmer, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you're going to um, make them almost like roommates or something, mm -hmm. you, you're getting rid of a little bit of the magic yeah. I think so one of the things that really gets me mad about anyone besides Chuck Jones or anyone that deviates from Chuck Jones's formula he wrote down nine rules for his Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner mm -hmm. um, cartoons and it's a pretty simple set of rules for success the new Looney Tunes show uh, they do CG Roadrunner cartoons I'm not bothered about the design change and things but what I'm worried about is I'm swapping around the formula so, should we read out the rules? A sure. Bit of that? This yeah. is from uh, Chuck Jones's autobiography, I guess. Yep. It's called Chuck and Mac. Great book. So, rule one the roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except by going beep, beep. Yeah. Now, in the cartoon that we've just watched, which we will put a link to on this website, the coyote becomes a ninja and the roadrunner becomes a ninja. In sort of the same spirit of contemporizing the episodes to a sort of sitcom format, they'll rather than do sort of shorts designed in from a storytelling perspective in the way that they would, you know, in the days of theatrical shorts, you know, they're, they're essentially putting together skits and that contemporary angle of you know pop culture parody reference for what it is, it it works, but it's it's sort of. It's when the wrong you characters. Like, yeah. It's the wrong characters. That's that's all my that's my gripe. It's the wrong characters. It did seem like the people involved in that were sort of saying, Okay, we need two characters um from the, the Looney Tunes universe that we know are pitted against one another, you know. Um so which one should they be? So rule number two No outside force can harm the coyote. Only his own ineptitude or the failure of the Acme products. The Acme products are big that we were saying, yeah. they're they're a big part of the coyote's uh 
Coyote's life and from the cartoon that we are talking discussing Silent But Deadly it's called it's from the Looney Tunes show the new Looney Tunes show he uses a lot of ninja gadgets and for it to be that little bit more endearing all they had to do was to write acne on the side of them for me right in the beginning he's reading a ninja book if he'd have got it out of a box or got it out of you know Acme rules of ninja out of his mailbox on Mm -hmm. the you know the Acme ninja rules I'd have been a lot more happier you know it wouldn't be that much of a stretch. It's just that this is a completely different type of, you know, short. But that second point kind of goes back to what I was saying about it. it's... He is his, you know... He's his own worst enemy. Yeah. You know, it's a simple premise, but it, it's what kind of defines the character. In this short, the Roadrunner and the Coyote are actively fighting one another, you know, when that doesn't seem like a fit. Rule three, the Coyote could stop at any time if he were not a fanatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea is he's fanatic. I think this is one of the rules that this cartoon doesn't break. The coyote still goes for it, mm-hmm. even though he goes for it in a in a different in a way that I'm not completely comfortable with. Yeah. Um, rule four: no dialogue ever except beep beep. The cartoon sort of sticks to that as well. Rule five: the roadrunner must stay on the road. Otherwise, logically, he would not be called roadrunner. Yeah, they're they're not on the road. (laughs) Rule six. All action must be confined to the natural environment of the two characters. The Southwest American desert. Where was this one set? It was set in the Southwest American desert. However, it was very Japanese. That's just, that's not a problem. That's just me being pedantic. Rule seven. All materials, tools, weapons, or mechanical conveniences must be obtained from the Acme Corporation. Hmm. That's back to my early point. Well, the yeah, maybe the catalog. That is out. not brand loyalty. It's not, no. is it? No. Rule eight: Wherever possible, make gravity the coyote's greatest enemy. There's no none of that falling uh, yeah. in in the cartoon, which is the best bit when he just looks at the camera, blinks, gets up a sign saying "Oh bother" or something yeah. like that before plummeting to his uh, his doom. They did that sort of hacky. Um stop the action turn the camera matrix thing which was sort of outdated like years ago yeah they didn't just do it once though they span around them a few times which mm-hmm. made me feel like oh right so you found the function that does that on <laughs> have you. well done and maybe maybe they did it a number of times and that was the joke but it didn't come across that way right yeah rule nine the coyote is always more humiliated than harmed by his failures in the end of this cartoon he ends up as a pile of flesh and bones because <laughs> Roadrunner who in rule one states he cannot harm the coyote except going beep beep Roadrunner chops him, him up with his nails that is why I don't like the new Warner Brothers uh-huh. uh, why the coyote cartoons did you see the um, more advanced CG new Roadrunners they were shown in cinemas I think uh, yes yeah um, no I, I haven't watched them with that rule book <laughs> in my hand but I, I from my memory I, I always read watch cartoons uh-huh. with rule books in my hand Ben I'm, well I'm it's the only way to properly enjoy them <laughs> yes yeah. Yeah. from my memory I thought I was going to hate those and ended up being like oh okay. like which is you know a significantly you know higher appreciation than I'd, I'd anticipated but from my memory uh, those were a little more faithful they at least had more of a sense of personality and atmosphere and they seemed to kind of go by the same essential rules as the original I mean did you see those Yes, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed, I enjoyed them. They're a bit more, um, 
a bit more Brockheimer, weren't they? A bit more sort of big budget camera moves, things yeah. like that. And the camera is very static in the. There may, may have been a pan at the beginning of most Chuck Jones cartoons, but mm -hmm. the uh, the camera was always very static in uh, in Chuck Jones stuff right. because I believe Fraser McLean even says it in his book, or he said it in one of our interviews. They used to do the animation first and then paint the backgrounds. Mm -hmm. You know, so yeah. that's how they used to do it. That's how they used to go around that. But what I really, really, really despised was, and this makes the new Looney Tunes sitcom version seem, you know, incredibly endearing and witty. And this was a thing about five or six years ago where it was a bunch of Looney Tunes characters and it was the future and they were like superheroes and they would fight crime. And the coyote and the roadrunner were friends. What the f is that about? <laughs> <laughs> the lunatics. That's what it was called. Ugh. It's called the lunatics. Frankly, it didn't survive. It didn't. It didn't catch on. But my <laughs> God, who who thinks this stuff up? It's like they were on a mission to destroy anything that these characters had ever developed over their their lifespan. I think I've mentioned before. I have this marketing corner of my brain where I look at something and I'll kind of deconstruct it. And, and, and imagine in my head the meetings that went on. Yeah. And, you know, people staying late, you know, with takeaway food, just really not making much of an effort, you know, um, um, developing concepts. It's like, okay, how about it's a very generic, what would you say, manga type? I didn't really remember yeah. the... Yeah. Very generic sort of Western manga spin type of a group mm -hmm. of crime fighters or whatever, and we'll have them be Looney Tunes characters. Gold! Let's run with it. We're all going home early. Yeah, here's ten million dollars. Get on with it. And I had that always from a very young age. When I was about eight or nine, there was a show called Biker Mice from Mars. Yes. And I remember being so nonplussed by that. They've just taken the title Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and replaced each word with a different thing. <laughs> well, they're not turtles, so they're mice. They're not ninjas, so they're, they ride bikes. They're not mutants, so they're aliens. It was essentially like the laziest development of a story. And I remember being sort of attuned to that at a young age and feeling a little, you know, well, probably it must have bothered me a little bit because I can still remember that. But, you know. Yeah. Um, Do you remember Street Sharks? No. Was that, there was a similar sort of thing where just sharks. Sharks, you know, with attitude. Yeah, yeah. We need some. We need a group of animals with sassafras. Yeah. To go out and do their thing. There's only one uh, shark with attitude. It's probably Jabberjaw, isn't it? Or, uh, <laughs> or Bruce from uh, Finding Nemo. That's I was a yeah. fan of Sharky and George. Sharky and George. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember a goddamn thing about it, but I like that song at the end. Theme tune. Yeah, that was. Don't. Yeah. Don't. Crimebusters of the Sea. Yeah. Da -da 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 -da. So, I think actually there's something that that's. In my head, like going back to the whole thing of, of like maybe being a little like repetitive for some people, something that I think introduced me to the Looney Tunes uh, world was the laziness of the Warner Brothers company in the 80s. They would make these Looney Tunes movies, feature films, that were pretty much just compilations of the old theatrical shorts edited together and they'd have these sort of like link scenes with like Bugs Bunny or whoever would be sort of introducing each short like that's not a movie but they would release it as such and it was it served a good purpose I guess which was introducing you know kids of, of my generation to these you know classic old shorts and there was one in particular it seemed to be like the very best of, of the Looney Tunes it, it summed up in like 90 minutes or whatever 
and it had Duck and Muck and it had Duck Dodgers and it had you know uh, Robin Hood Daffy and it had the um, Duck Season Wabbit Season you know mm-hmm. What's Opera Doc the whole last like half hour of this film was just Roadrunner and Coyote now this was at the, t- at the time I didn't sort of realize what the source material was that I think by the sort of you know 15 minutes in did start to grate a bit yeah like I remember having to watch that in like chunks you know because at the end of the day it is one setting it is one joke more or less you know because it, the humor of it is how it's what the variation is you know so I could sort of see like again if, yeah if you're going to watch like a marathon of, of Roadrunner that might sort of get a little eh. but yeah personally for me I'll always be you know a, a Roadrunner uh, champion you know yeah, well, it's Tom and Jerry for me. Yeah? Yeah. Just a little a personal story. Maybe the reason I don't like Roadrunner, when I was a kid with the granddad I was talking about earlier on, uh, I was probably around about eight years old, nine years old, and I'd won tickets to uh, the Media Museum in, in Bradford. We'd won, like, tickets to see uh, IMAX and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then afterwards, there was, like, this cartoon club. And there was, like, a big o- an audience of people, and they said, we want some people to come down from the audience to take part in our cartoon quiz. And uh, I was like, oh, oh, can I have a go? Can I have a go? And I, and I turned around to every member of the family that was there. And there was only my granddad that said yes. Mm. And this is where, I think this is where I got my cartoon knowledge from, maybe my granddad, because he sat there and he was, he was sort of be behind me with his hands on my shoulder. And, and, he, and he says, what I'll do is I'll, I'll sort of, I'll nudge you every time I know the answer and I'll whisper it in your ear. <laughs> we were getting him instantly. My granddad had answered the question straight away. I didn't know this man had so much knowledge on cartoons and things, it was, it was brilliant. But the only question we got wrong, I think we got 15 right and they got one right. Mm-hmm. And it was, and if, see if you can get it right, what does the roadrunner say besides beep beep? He has that sort of bottle noise with his tongue. That's the only, only thing I've ever heard him say. The answer was nothing. How cheated did I feel, even though we'd already, even though... F*** you, Media Museum competition from 20 years ago. Yeah. The nerve. <laughs> There's a lot of agony uh, associated with there the Runner memories. Yeah. yeah. So Chuck Jones came into Tom and Jerry, that was what, like early 60s? Yeah, yeah, he took over when, uh, when Hanna-Barbera went on to do... Uh, TV stuff they yeah. they they carried on uh, with uh, obviously Flintstones and um, it is strange like how Tom and Jerry were such rich characterful animation you know and and then Hanna Barbera became known for this awful you know grape ape I think that's finance more than anything else really isn't it well it was it was genius in the sense of of the way that you know I mean I, I read recently that Adult Swim at the moment have like the most you know, programming, new programming for per season because of the way they just knock out shows. Mm. That was essentially what Hanna Barbera were doing, you know, back in the day. It doesn't mean the shows are any good. Like, you know, it's, mm. I think when you have that real economic animation, you gotta up your game with the writing. You know, and and yeah. going back to all the stuff we've talked about of, of Beavis and Butthead and Family Guy and and uh, Simpsons and whatever, like the, the stuff that isn't Disney animation, that um, South Park. You know, it, 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 it's stuff that works on a different level it's, it's story based or it's dialogue based or you know whatever some Hanna-Barbera stuff did have that I would I'd happily say that I could I could sit through a lot of you know old Flintstones for example but on the other hand you know a lot of it did seem just kind of churned out and a little mass produced and, and it's an odd juxtaposition against you know the very lavish elaborate uh, uh, Tom and Jerry episodes you wouldn't have thought it would be the same studio hmm. 
what would you say would be like the main because I don't really remember if I'm honest with you what would you say would be the main sort of shift in style when uh, Chuck Jones came on board well Chuck Jones has got a very uh, distinctive line really hasn't he he's got a very distinctive character design Mm-hmm. The the sort of tufts on the side of Wiley Coyote's face and the uh, mm. I think that the characters were given more of a more of an edge. I think that was predominant in his cartoons right. and, and the style changed. So you you had that favourite uh, uh, Tom and Jerry that was the um, the, was the concert Chirta. hall. Yeah, what happened in that one? That's the this is the the famous one where where Tom's playing the piano, yeah, but he's playing the piano in order to get Jerry. Jerry oh, yeah, gets yeah, in the yeah, piano, yeah, yeah, yeah. and Tom's playing, and, and they, they make it havoc for each other. It's very good. I kind of wish I could remember because I, I they're just not as fresh in my memory. I have one memory of of an episode that I guess I must have liked because I it's the one that that comes to mind, and it's uh, Tom dies and goes to hell or goes to heaven, and he, he gets sort of sent back to. Um, make amends with Jerry or something but then he he it all backfires or he can't you know help himself so he ends up just going to hell anyway <laughs> <laughs> yeah sort of indicative of the stuff that I engaged with as a kid yeah yeah <laughs> I mean it, the, the idea that storytelling back then it wasn't so rigorous was it because you could have Tom getting sliced in half and he wouldn't die mm. or you could have him sliced into a million pieces and he'd turn into lots of little Toms yeah. before mashing together into a big Tom that sort of thing. Um, I think that was Tom and Jerry, but um, that sort of thing didn't bother the writers. What if it was funny? They did it. If it was, you know, which is like like Ren and Stimpy, uh, mm. John John K. That's what that was his philosophy. That's why Ren and Stimpy would end up in space in some episodes. Yeah. But it didn't matter. I mean, if they had a joke about heaven, then obviously when when Jerry sliced Tom in half, then he would actually die, and his angel with the harp and the wings oh, and yeah, the halo yeah. would float up to heaven. You know, if it was part of the story, but you know, it, it had to serve the the humour, the gags, didn't it? Really, it, yeah. it, they weren't so. They, I, I can't imagine somebody standing over and saying that wouldn't happen. Anything goes, doesn't it? With with, yeah. with these early shorts, and that's what's so. I think that's what's so endearing and fun about them. I think what made you know shorts like Ren and Stimpy so unique in the sense that they were reviving something that had been forgotten for a mm. long time. The sort of absence of continuity making way for just the joyfulness and the limitlessness of animation. I mean, there were points where Ren and Stimpy would die in pretty much every episode. Yeah. You know? But what I did like about Ren and Stimpy was they would get hurt horribly, and then in the next scene they wouldn't be fine. <laughs> They'd still yeah. be nursing the wounds. <laughs> so, okay, I'm for Roadrunner, you're for Tom and Jerry. Yep. Drum roll. Just think of a drum roll in your heads, kids. And it is. So the winner with quite a large proportion of the votes is uh, Tom and Jerry. <sighs> Fine. <laughs> All right. So what next? Let's do another one of these because I like ranting about what's wrong with cartoons today. So uh, what what should we do next month? Uh, next let's, episode. Let, let's take back to um, let's get take back to our childhood again. I think I, I enjoyed uh, Warner Brothers animation revival in the nineties. How about Animaniacs versus Tiny Toon Adventures? Cool, let's do that then. You heard the man. As usual, there'll be the poll on the podcast page. You know, cast your vote and get in touch and uh, let us know what camp you're in and we'll tell you why you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because we have the microphone. (laughs) What do you think of them apples? (laughs) 
so the nice thing about having a podcast on top of the you know usual written magazine portion of Squiggly is getting to talk to people who work on a different side of things and. Uh, one of the most crucial elements, I think, of successful animation, and I think it's widely regarded that, you know, sound in general is, is vital for, you know, if you want to make a funny animation or a dramatic animation, when you want to convey any kind of tone whatsoever, you need the right sound and you need the right performers. And that's been the case going right back into the Looney Tunes with people like Mel Blanc taking on, you know, all these different characters and giving them all their own individual personalities. And he's, of course, no longer with us, but we have a whole new generation of current voiceover actors who are really quite spectacular. We were really very privileged to get to talk to, in my opinion, one of the best ones around today, a guy called Billy West. He began his career in radio and segued into animation projects with the start of the original Nicktoons lineup, doing voices for Doug in the Ren and Stimpy show. Since then, he's worked on a whole bunch of different projects, uh, feature films, advertising campaigns, and most recently, and I would say the project he's probably most well known for, is Matt Groening's Futurama, which was brought back to Comedy Central a couple years ago, and a new season is about to begin this June. So there's not many people he hasn't voiced, really, has he? I mean, we've got like the likes of Popeye, and we've got Bugs Bunny, we've got Elmer Fudd, all these sort of uh, staple characters. Before we even go into the work that he's put a slant on himself, yeah. you know, I mean, you have to be incredibly skilled to be a voice artist because you have to. He's not only mimicking other people; he's actually finding a voice for these other characters, isn't he? Yeah. And a whole range of them in each project. And it's hard to say whether or not a pre-existing character would be harder to do in terms of imitation, or whether you know coming up with one from scratch would be. Like I think each one would have to be a pretty challenging discipline in and of itself. So some of the voices he's been responsible on Futurama, uh, Fry, the Professor, Zoidberg. Zoidberg is my favourite. Zap Brannigan, the complete blowhard character, and I know he's my favourite. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also hundreds of supplemental characters. Like they're, they're I think my, literally they're my favourite. Oh Sorry, yeah, yeah, they're my favourite. I, <laughs> I think um, it is probably literally in the hundreds at this point. It must be. Um, and, uh, you know, back in the day, he was uh, Doug from Doug, which I remember vaguely. Um, but really, you know, the association I will always have for him is, is Ren and Stimpy. So among the characters he played in Ren and Stimpy, of course, was Stimpy. And then later taking the reins as Ren after John Kreese for Lucy wasn't involved in the show anymore. Kind of setting in motion, you know, uh, taking over other iconic characters such as Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and Popeye. And a man who I think shares your gripe, Steve, and mine about uh, the tendency of, you know, in Hollywood films, you know, casting celebrities to do voiceovers. And yeah. When really, you know, you have this whole other pool of, you know, voiceover actors that could do a far better job, including Billy West and Tara Strong and Maurice LaMarche and Rob Paulson, uh, uh, Phil Lamar. You know, they, there's not to mention all the people on The Simpsons, you know, Costello Netter and, and Harry Shearer, you know, people who have that character acting that just works for that kind of, you know, voiceover performance. And we get into that a little bit. I don't think it's too bad getting a well-known actor to voice an animation, but so long as they're right for it. If you mm. want, if you if you want a, a, an animated character to sound like, uh, for example, Hugh Grant, then get Hugh Grant to do it. Mm -hmm. If he's going to do a good job. Yeah. But like otherwise, get somebody with a skill. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. get get your Billy Wests to do it. This is this is what what should be done really. As as talented as Hugh Grant is, I don't think he'd do a very good Elmer Fudd or Popeye. 
you're not going to see them have that same range of you know a, a character and the same range of you know different emotions different backgrounds just the way the the physicality of, of how a voice travels through this throat you know like if you think of the way a character like Popeye speaks it's completely different to you know a character like Stimpy or you know anyone from Futurama just look at the different sort of like how the professor you know has that sort of age but it is more or less sort of coming from the same place as Fry but to do that with your voice, to age your voice like that, you know, mm-hmm. that's a sort of skill on top of just being able to act. It's it's being able to, it's a functional thing. It's a craftsman thing of, of you know, using your voice as the tool of your craft. Exactly. Yeah. It's like being a, a professional singer. You know? It's not just ages as well. It's um, dialogue. It's pronunciation. It's it's accent. It's, it's a whole host of things, which has been incredibly good to do. I mean, you wouldn't think that Zoidberg and Zap Brannigan were voiced by the same man no. if you weren't if you didn't have a trained ear or if you I, I know because obviously I'm I'm an animation geek, but I think a lot of people would be quite surprised. I, and- I had a similar mind blown experience where somebody actually had to tell me that Fry was the same voice as Stimpy and they're pretty similar. Mm. Not, not in not entirely. I mean Stimpy's a lot dopier, Fry's a lot more carefree. But they've got, they've still got the very, they've got a very heavy Billy West flavour. Yeah, I would say that's because they're lead characters and they have to, you know. The characterization, even though the voice is kind of the same, not. I mean, you know, the the Stimpy is an older voice, like yeah. Stimpy is, and that's was sort of why that character was so funny to have that kind of, you know, um, uh, Larry Fine type voice yeah. in this this you know goofy cat. And Fry is, you know, essentially this sort of jubilant, exuberant, you know, uh, uh, idiot youth, sort of young, dumb, full of, mm-hmm. etc. So that's another element to consider. And when you think of, you know, I can think of any, you know, voice actor worth their salt can do that with their characters, you know, when they can have that, uh, not even necessarily, like I remember Tara Strong, who is uh, one of the Powerpuff Girls, played another character in a show called Drawn Together, using pretty much the same voice, but the one character in the Powerpuff Girls was incredibly sweet and innocent and the one in Drawn Together was this hideous obnoxious mess but it was the same voice more or less yeah. and how you convey that is, is it's I, I can't even work out how you do that you know it's, it is quite masterful there's a subtle nuance to it isn't there a subtle yeah. little twist to, yeah. uh, that gives the right effect so let's hear Ben's interview with Billy West I would guess it's pretty safe to say that uh, certainly in terms of the voiceover world, your career is, is it's definitely gone from strength to strength. And um, I mean, you've been associated with some of the most important contemporary animation projects in, in my lifetime, certainly. I mean, was that always a plan for you? Like, was that always your career goal? Um, not always. I mean, it, certainly the ability was there and the passion for it since I was a very young kid, but well, uh, music was as well. You know, I wanted to be the best guitar player in the world. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I still play like crazy. I got a room full of guitars. I, I remember that sort of rearing its head and, like, um, they'd have musical numbers and, like, Ren and Stimpy and Futurama. And you had the band The Grief Counselors for a while. Is that still going? Yeah. Um, well, someday to be revived. Uh-huh. But um, I needed to do something musical, and so I just did one while I was running around like crazy. And, you know, it was more like a, a placeholder in my head for ideas that I had. I didn't really ever imagine that you could do something like this for a living. I, I didn't think so at all, because I came from that immigrant mentality world, you know, where uh, if you're not working 18 hours a day, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, if, they, if I don't do the right witty little voice that day, they'll take away my house. I mean, I didn't think it all hinged on that. And so I never thought pragmatically or seriously about it. You know, I was just kind of, I knew I was going to be entertaining and doing stuff somehow, musically. But um, the cartoon thing just kind of grabbed me and ran off with me. Mm. Like it chooses you. Yeah, yeah. We did. Uh, you did some radio beforehand. Did that kind of organically? I did radio in Boston uh, in 1980. Yeah. On an FM station, WBCN, and I worked on a morning show, which was uh, Charles Lacquadera's Big Mattress Show. Hmm. And uh, you know, it was a great place to cut my teeth on all that stuff. Um, I, I loved the, the beauty that radio was capable of, and I also hated it for what it was turning into with robotics, you know, afoot. But that was one of the last freeform FM stations right. before the consultants got in and strangled it to death. Yeah, I get the impression that, that FM radio and well, sort of non-satellite radio is kind of dying a bit of a death. Um, the writing was on the wall that it was supposed to, but it's still going strong. And nobody knew that AM would become the focal point of the, uh, the revenues in radio. Right. You know, because FM was it. I went as far as I could go in Boston, like career-wise, as far as I was concerned, and I wanted to go to New York. And we had a sister station in New York City, WXRK, and that happened to be where Howard Stern was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I had been warned of this enfant terrible. <laughs> and, uh, but I was fascinated by him because I thought he was just, uh, I thought he was brilliant. He broke down all the walls of convention as far as, stale old radio rules and, and, you know, modes of operation. It's like he fucked everything, and that's that's the only way that you can create something new. Mm. And the non-creative people just don't, can't understand that. It's like explaining a desert to a polar bear. Yeah, yeah. It's, and uh... so he, he was a, a great one to watch and to work with. I worked with him for a long time. You know, and then I, I felt it was time to move on from there. So I packed up and I said, you know, L.A. is probably where I want to be because I was I was doing voiceover and a lot of character work and I said, why, you know, why don't I just audition for commercials and, and animation and which is what I did and then in 1990, um, I was approached by two different creative forces at Nickelodeon. One was the uh, the show Doug. Uh huh. Yeah. And that was the Nickelodeon version, not the Disney one. Yeah, was the Disney one a bit more? Um sanitized perhaps yeah and uh you know i did that for four years as, alongside of when i was doing uh, ren and stimpy yeah and i was still working in radio on the stern show and then i phased out of there in 1995 i think it was yeah so that was quite a bit of overlap then i guess because i guess that was ren and stimpy would have ended like a year or two years after that yeah i think ren and stimpy ended by 1995 officially uh-huh. Was it because of the time on the Stern Show that brought you to the attention of the Nickelodeon people? I'm not sure. Maybe that's true. Because I hadn't really done anything before that, except in 1988, I, uh, they were doing a version of Beanie and Cecil. Uh-huh. ABC, and uh, that whole thing was a mess. <laughs> but, uh, but I was called upon to do uh, Cecil the Sea Six Sea Serpent, and... You know, it, it was fun, and it was new to me. I said, this is my first official cartoon Yeah, yeah. that I was in in 1988. 
And was Chris Lucy involved in that one? Yeah. Sort of rings up, yeah. So that could possibly be the the connection. Yeah. Um, how did then, when you were approached for say Ren and Stimpy, what was the kind of pitch to you as a performer? Since I had worked with John Chris Lucy, however briefly. He just remembered stuff that I used to screw around with. I'd be toretting out characters and all this other stuff. And one of them was that I had this great love for Larry Fine of the Three Stooges. Uh-huh. And he was the one that didn't seem to do anything and except now and then say something. But when he said something, it used to split me yeah. in half. And, and I thought it was so beautifully funny and peripheral that I fixated on it so I could do his voice. Mm-hmm. But uh, when... John Kay brought Ren and Stimpy around. He had me in mind for that the Stimpy voice, but we needed to, you know, pitch it up, make it more childlike than you know, because Larry just sounded like a depressed old Jewish guy. He knows. <laughs> yeah. And so Stimpy was kind of childlike and kind of innocent. You know, he could be loud and and uh, boisterous at times, and he could cry. But they did a lot of screaming between the two of them. Yeah. I auditioned for both characters when it first was brought to my attention, and I did an audition. We were on our way to Nickelodeon. Uh, John Chris Fousey was going to sell the show, sell the voices, and uh, we recorded a bunch of stuff in the closet at uh, <laughs> MTV at the last minute, and John went in to meet with the Nickelodeon people, and uh, he came out and he says, what you did sold the show. <laughs> and... Uh, so then, but I didn't know that his agenda was that he wanted to do the voice of Ren, which was fine by me. I mean, I didn't yeah. care who did what, to tell you the truth. I really didn't. Um, but, you know, and, he, and it was such a great character and everything, but he got into trouble with Nick, business-wise and creative-wise, and they parted ways, and, you know, the show was going to fold. And there would have been, like, you know, hundreds of people out of work. And, um, you know, I decided to not only stay with the show, but they auditioned every voice actor in Hollywood for the voice of Ren. And then they said, wait a minute, wasn't Billy... (laughs) Didn't he read for it originally? And said, why don't we try him? So, you know, I tried to replicate the character as it it had become to be known, but I, uh, I have a somewhat different idea about it. And I was basically doing what I did in my original audition. Yeah, there were sort of unique takes to both of them, but it was fundamentally the same character. I mean, I always sort of felt that a Ren Howick as a for a voiceover artist must have been something of a dream character to get oh, to sort of sink your teeth into. That John brought to it his invention and his interpretation of like you know 1940s dark figures, yeah, <laughs> you know 1950s. Jackie Gleason types and sort of people like Peter Laurie and, and Kirk Douglas and yeah, all, all kind of rolled into one and I thought it was brilliant that was his battle with Nickelodeon it wasn't mine I was not his partner I was no. hired gun and that's that yeah you know it did go on afterwards for quite a few years. Like, yes, it did. And, uh, and I think, I mean, there's a, a, for lack of a better term, elitist school of thought that post Crease for Lucy, if you're an animator, you sort of shouldn't have an allegiance to it. But I always felt that, that 
what they were able to do with it and what they were able to maintain with it and bring, you know, certain directors, people like Bill Ray and, and Chris Riccardi and all these different artistic styles, it became something kind of like a modern day Looney Tunes. You, you know, you could identify character performances with directors and as someone who you know is a fan of of you know design and animation and illustration and seeing all these different takes on the characters and, and sort of I don't know, condensed into you know two or three years it was a, a very fascinating quite anomalous but but very watchable interesting show and i loved when i got to do incidental voices of some character that would pop up yeah um and it was a test for me to keep coming up with some unique or goofball voice with a twist on it yeah so following that i remembered when uh, uh, futurama began and uh i think there was about i don't know three or four year gap between that and ren and simpy yes. and i guess you had you been mainly sort of working on commercials in that time oh yeah and i was working in radio in new york on the howard stern show when that show came along, I remember being very happy seeing your name in the TV guide listing. It's like, oh, fantastic. You know, he's in the new Matt Groening show. Uh, I hope they've given him a new character. A thing to happen. Hmm. You know, I only auditioned for a couple of voices originally. and uh, But I did audition for Fry and I auditioned for Bender. You know, you name it. I'll, yeah. I'll go out for anything. I'm a journeyman. And um, it wound up that I got four roles. Yeah, yeah, and then That's some of the the honor to do it to this day. It's thrilling and exciting because it's it's my favorite project that I've ever been involved with. And and for it to you know keep going for so long and to yeah, keep I having that. I mean, but it's it's a concerted effort of all the right kind of people, you know. Like, because uh, I've worked with people who are just notorious for blowing their own feet off with a shotgun. <laughs> it was is a little bit different. A little yeah. Bit different. For the benefit of the listeners, could you maybe talk us through the main four that you bring to Futurama? Um, yeah, I play Philip J. Fry, 25-year-old pizza delivery boy. <laughs> and man, all this constant exposure to radiation is making me thirsty. <laughs> um, that voice is basically me when I was 25. I said, you know what? F it. I'm going to just use my own voice. <laughs> It, it would be really hard to copy somebody's real flawed voice like mine. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, without really doing a character, I was basically kind of riffing as I would have if I were 25. I wasn't as, as innocent as Fry when I was 25. I was a hellion that was playing in bands. And again, it's sort of in the sort of stimpy sense where you can kind of play up that innocence. It must be quite fun to, as a performer, kind of capture that sort of childlike character. A lot of these Candide type characters, mm -hmm. you know, where they're just kind of innocent and and pure. Then I played Screaming Maniacs half the other time, so um, it's good balances out. <laughs> yeah, and then I did Doctor John Zoidberg. <laughs> Young lady, bring me a sandwich from the dumpster and leave the maggots on us. <laughs> and uh, he was a combination of a couple of voices I remember from my childhood. Uh, one was an actor named Lou Jacoby, and he had kind of a marble mouth, and, and a guy named George Jessel from American Vaudeville mm -hmm. um, and radio. He had a marble mouth, and I fused the two of them together. So, it was, uh, Professor Hubert Farnsworth, good news, everyone. Bad 
venues. <laughs> um, he's just the, like the Wizard of Oz, doddering old wizard, yeah. professor types, you know, absent-minded and, and shaky because he was 147 years old. And he's got sagging skin. When you're performing a character like that, do you find that, that in terms of, of expression or, or movement, um, do you actually sort of perform in a different way, like physically, or do you... I know I make the face, and physically I do have to, to shake um, when I do a character like him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't try to do much of that outside of that, but anything that makes it what it is, I'll do. Yeah. You know, as long as the objective is met, like, by my standards and by the creators and directors and producers' standards. And then there was old Zap Brannigan, <laughs> time, space, and everything else in between, and, uh, oh yeah, winner of this year's Modesty Award, yeah. <laughs> And absolutely, you know, I mean, that, as a sort of ensemble in and of itself. Um, it's, um, it's like stoic, you know, Captain, Captain's Courageous, uh-huh. a big dumb radio announcer from the 60s. Is there a bit of the Grease Man in there? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> my, my general knowledge of... of I talk about that, but there was a guy floating around for a while. <laughs> I mean... Everything was like this and it, <laughs> that's sort of trailing off after the end of each word yeah, um, yeah I love that stuff though but that was I worked with a lot of big dumb announcers who loved <laughs> far and away above anything else in the effing world was their voice yeah you know and they wouldn't give birth to it half the time it'd be like uh, coming up on 20 minutes of 11 <laughs> Was there also a bit of that in the um, that one sort of human character in the in Ren and Stimpy who his role kind of shifted, but he was that kind of he was either a salesman or an announcer, whatever kind of the story oh, suited. He, uh, yeah, he'd be a salesman. Yeah, and then he'd be the screaming announcer is the only way I used to call him, and and I didn't want to do it, you know, like uh, the cliched version of it, um, you know, new amazing products. Yeah. Or whatever he said, because that's what's from my childhood, and he sure looked like he could have been from the old days with that glob of Jarrus <laughs> or you know Vitalis uh-huh. end of one hair, that greasy hair gel <laughs> or hair cream they used. Oh, that's what that was. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and it was really cool. That was a wonderful character that they put together. And so what I did was I screamed it and belted it out with all confidence, except I put the emphasis on all the wrong words. Uh-huh. As if this guy, this idiot, didn't understand the text of, uh, the subtext of what he was saying. Yeah. Yeah. It, that is. was the only thing I could bring to it, and, and it worked for him. Going back to Zap Brannigan, was that... I've heard different things of it being for William Shatner and also something that it was going to be for Phil Hartman yeah. at one point. Well, I think they had him in mind for that role. Mm. And um, I was named after Phil Hartman. Yeah. You could see how perfect that would have been, like why they would have had him in mind for that or why they would have crafted that character and then... Such a shame, of course, that he couldn't be involved, but... Uh, um, yeah, it is. I mean, I really like the guy, and we were kind of getting friendly before um, I did Futurama. Mm-hmm. We had done M&M's commercials, because I was the red M&M uh-huh. for years, and still am. And he played a, a melting candy bar <laughs> <laughs> in one of the sessions, and 
we hit it off but he called me when I still lived in New York he called me out of the blue to say he was a fan oh. and I was like shaking I said well I kind of know who you are too you know mm. you know it was just great to work with him and um, and then unfortunately he was killed and they wanted to bring this character in and you know I kind of know what Phil Hartman would have done with it because and when we talked we just got that mutual love of big dumb announcers yeah from the old days and so I kind of did it like that and I also brought you know some of my own history experience with, with people and interpersonal stuff given how long the show's gone on have you been able to do that to more of a degree with not just Brannigan but the other characters like really kind of flesh them out oh yeah they've explored so many emotional spectrums with these characters because we've had enough time to do it and uh, I've gone all over the place emotionally with, with most of these characters. There are a lot of tender moments. And yeah. Do you get attached to them, like, as, as people? Because I imagine they must become sort of like a second skin after a while. To me, it's very real. Yeah, because I, I inhabit those characters, and I do them so often, so it is a part of life. And, uh, I mean, have you had many sort of opportunities to sort of delve into that side of things before Futurama came around? Um, well, yeah, sure. I mean, I did hundreds and hundreds of characters um, over the years, and, you know, it was always like I was, uh, you know, I'd show up prepared, I'd have the material, and I'd have a good idea of what I was going to do, and, and believe me, they'll tell you if, if it's not what they want or they don't like it, and you have to keep shape-shifting until you find it. I guess if you're, you're sort of the, the performer of the character, is there ever any sort of conflict with the writing of an episode? Like maybe you'd feel something your character would do was actually they wouldn't behave that way. And do you have any sort of say in that? You know what? I, I throw out the rule book when it comes to that stuff. Uh-huh. Saying a character wouldn't do that. I mean, of course there's things they wouldn't do or say, but the writers know the characters better than I do. Right. And so, you know, I have to just totally uh, defer to their greatest strengths, the writers. And they are fantastic, fantastic writers. I mean, it's one of the... the mm-hmm. Probably one of the, the yeah. cleverest sort of comedy shows on television. And sometimes you have to really be kind of intellectual to, to fully appreciate some of it. Tons of layers to it. I mean, you know, modern comedy is sort of like the only way that... Like somebody like Maurice Lamarche, the other voice guy who does like Kip Croker and Morbo and a huge gelatinous yeah. And a, and a lot of other incidentals or impressions. We were talking about modern comedy because the both of us are, you know, uh, venerable. Uh, we remember many decades of types of comedy and everybody thinks they've got the best flavor that's ever come along. Yeah. So the new comedy, the only way we could describe it was um, that random is the new funny. Like, yeah. Sometimes there could be no rhyme or reason for whatever it is you just did. To me, that's a that's a strange concept because, you know, in my mind, there has to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. Structure. Um, yeah, pretty much artists of all types kind of live by that, you know, even the painters. Hmm. But, you know, there's that, that's modern, and then there's Borst Belt humor. You know, 1930s Yiddish humor. Yeah. Um, there's uh, old old people humor when people were allowed to make fun of old people <laughs> the senile jokes and all that stuff so there's there's many levels of comedy going on in this which 
John DiMaggio playing Bender is a total rogue from any decade. Yeah. Some elements are going to be just sort of timeless like that, and, and those types of characters, I think, are going to always sort of survive the adapting you know, fashions of, of what's comedy and what's contemporary. There are some things that just sort of fundamentally remain the same. There's a point when old school is so old that it becomes new school. That's the cycle of life. And I can do stuff that meant a whole lot to me when I was a kid, impact-wise or comedy-wise, and it'll be totally new and foreign to somebody of now yeah and it'll, to them it's, it's brand new I guess also some of the uh, the homages I guess to the older types of comedy stuff like you know drawing influence from say the Three Stooges or, or when they're presented in this new context to a younger audience that sort of becomes their exposure to it in a way so it's kind of nice that it keeps things alive it sort of reaches back into older traditions and kind of brings them you know to the foreground and says look at what came before yeah, but I've always felt funny is funny, no matter what the package it comes in. Hmm. So it went off the air for a while. Did you get a handle on what it was exactly that brought about it coming back to uh, Comedy Central? Like, was it a push from the fans, from like with Family Guy? Or? Let's see. Uh, Adult Swim never got a lot of credit for for rerunning the original show uh-huh. for kind of a long time, and that gathered a brand new audience and now it's turned over generationally it seems to me um, kids that were 10 when Futurama came on are now well into their college years Yeah, the audience keeps changing there's, now there's 10 year olds watching stuff we did 10 and 11 years ago so it's, the audience keeps uh, building you know but I think story-wise, that, that because you know Futurama is always you know in the future, there's less I think about it that shifts the essence of it. Is the, it's the same show as it was like 12, 13 years ago? Maybe a little bolder, perhaps in in terms of the writing. But I'm not sure if that's just me or that's just sort of the times changing. Do you know if there are any sort of different parameters with Comedy Central than there were with Fox? I think maybe they've got a little more free reign. Hmm. But I mean, Fox is still producing the show. Uh huh. Yeah, Comedy Central, you know, opted to show the project. We still do it at Fox. And I think there's a super station, WGN maybe, that syndicated it on weekends across the country. Cool. Something as well that uh, I imagine must be tremendously, well, I would find it very intimidating, but you've, you've been given opportunities to take on some really very iconic characters. Like, you know, Bugs Bunny being the sort of most obvious one, and also Popeye, Woody Woodpecker, and, and I mean, that's got to be quite daunting. Well, for me, it's not because I'm a freak. <laughs> uh-huh. want to know how I do this stuff. I don't care to know how I do this <laughs> You know, I will not bring too much science to that. I was just a freak. That's all I can tell you. Cool. So, were you given sort of some free reign to reinterpret the characters at all, or...? Um, not really, I mean, but here's the problem with doing a franchise character. There are some people whose favorite Bugs Bunny was from the 50s. There's yeah. some people whose favorite Bugs Bunny was from the 40s. Some like the 60s or 70s Bugs Bunny. Yeah. So they queued them up. And so, you know, everybody that came in that threw their two cents in when I was doing the character for the movie, hey, he's too Jewish, you know, or, hey, he's too Brooklyn. <laughs> everybody that would come in would have something to say about it. Yeah. And so I had to, I had to stick to my instincts. Other other than that, I was flying blind. Were you involved at all in the the latest one that was sort of set up more like a sitcom of the Looney Tunes characters? 
Um, no, I'm not doing bugs on that. That's the thing about that character is that no one really can lay claim to it post Mel Blanc because hmm. they'll have one guy do it for a while and then I did it for 10 years and then I'll have another guy and another guy do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I don't feel like that character belongs to me. It doesn't resonate like the ones I created, but out of respect and, and for a paycheck, you know, you've got to try to replicate it as faithfully as possible. Right now, I'm just I'm doing Elmer Fudd from Looney Tunes. All right. It seems almost redundant to say, but I would assume that Mel Blanc would have had to have been quite a, a, an inspiration. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I heard that voice from childhood on, and, you know, I'd look at the cartoon and I'd read the credits, you know, when I was first able to read, and I would see one name. Yeah. And I'd hear 20 characters. I'd look at the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. I'd see four names but I just heard like 12 characters an episode yeah. and I said these people are crazy I know that there's no magical reason this stuff is happening I said there are crazy human adults behind all this and that's what intrigued me and, and pulled me to it that does evoke a childhood memory of mine of um a kid who would bring in you know his Ren and Stimpy's that he taped off the TV into school and we would watch the credits through because I had that great music at the end and I have this very distinct memory of everyone kind of going quiet when they see on the screen Billy West as Ren and Stimpy and everyone kind of looked around each other and yeah, no way that couldn't possibly because of how completely polarized they were oh yeah I mean they were stunned they were like because there was this handful of people, a very small but annoying group of botherers that stoned me to death on the internet. <laughs> With Futurama, do you make many sort of public appearances, like convention appearances? Yes, I do. And I love meeting people. That's why I go do it. I would never know what was going on in the world unless I went out in it and saw people um, in volume and talked to them as much as I could. And, uh, you know, and, and the there are people that follow your work. Do you know what the odds of that are in a lifetime? That people would pay attention to what you did and they would follow your career. And and it's like, God, you know, I mean, you feel like you owe everybody big time, but you're nothing but grateful. Yeah. On the sort of convention note, I saw recently um, Comic Book the Movie, which uh, I enjoyed a lot, the Mark Hamill film. Um, oh, yes, yes. And uh, uh, was that your first go with, like, live action, sort of long form like that? Yes, it was. First of all, very good job. I really I really liked... Well, I think everyone who was sort of involved with it, it was sort of so great to see so many people kind of come together in that way. Um, how did that whole... There was no script. At all? No. Oh, wow. Okay. No, this is the actors inventing on the spot. Uh-huh. And when somebody says that they directed it, there was nothing to direct, really. Hmm. We were left to our own devices to interpret these characters as quick as we could. I guess that sort of contributes to why it all sort of comes off very naturalistic. That's what makes, I guess, a good mockumentary um, is, you know, because you can sort of tell the scripted ones right off the bat, you know, and it doesn't quite... Because yeah, there's you... a couple of times when it's glaringly apparent that something... I don't mean scripted, I mean, the improvs were, you know, pretty much within the parameters of what would be a script. Yeah. You know, because you can't step all over anybody. You've got to work out the choreography. And we've only, we only had a few minutes each time to do that. Like, who's going to say what when? 
Mm-hmm. He's going to come over here and he's going to go over there. I mean, somebody had to move the characters around. And a lot of times it was the camera people. You know, they say, we got this great shot and we're missing it because you're not turning a certain way. And yeah. a lot of it was everybody's own idea, you know, like what they did. Would you do more live action stuff? Like, if, um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's like, I don't know what I would do. Right. I really don't. I mean, you know, I understand acting. Believe me, I've met tons of voiceover people that can fit circles around a lot of actors I've seen. Hmm. And they're not even seen. Something that uh, we've talked about a few times on the on the podcast since we started is the impulse in Hollywood movies, or you know, even in you know UK based feature films, where they need to have that. In, in lieu of a sort of trained voice cast or a more established sort of voice cast, they will put just actors with the name so they can have that on the poster, potentially to the kind of detriment of the film, you know. Yeah. And it's almost like the TV universe of voice acting is a completely separate entity to the film universe. And, uh, I mean, to me, it just kind of seems like there's much more of a pool of talent. And, you know, when you look to the, I mean, just case study being Futurama, people like you and, and Phil Lamar and Maurice LaMarche and, and every, for every one of these performers, you get entire voice casts of, of potential, you know, voices, interpretations, and then you'll just sort of get. It stings a little bit because it invalidates what you did your whole life. I mean, there's, there's suddenly no rules. Everybody comes in at the top of their game, whether think or not. I mean, you, you enter, uh, not at entry level, you enter at the top. Yeah. And uh, for the celebrity thing, you know, all I get to say is my heroes in life were artists. You know, not celebrities, okay? Yeah. You know, that's, that's as simple as I can put it. And, you know, Hollywood doesn't want to lose its star system because most movies that are successful are animated ones. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's here to stay. I mean, just get used to it. But my regret or my my feeling about everything is that it's not for me. People say, what are you bitching about? You know, you do everything <laughs> on the planet. And, and it's not for me. Believe me. It's, it's like I had a chance when that door was open, you know, for people that were true artisans in voiceover. Um, but out there, there's 19-year-old firebrands that could blow people away but might never get the chance. Yeah. Of, you know, celebrities invading animation and TV animation occasionally. Have you ever, because I know that, that Futurama has had quite a lot of like celebrities guesting, sort of sitting in on that. Have you ever sort of witnessed, I don't know, that firsthand? Well, you know what? The people that have been stunt casted have always been really cool. Okay. Yeah, but I think they, they sit there and they watch us working and, and all of a sudden I see this look on their face like one of these things is not like the other. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If people have stood there and, and with their jaw open and just say, I don't, how do you people, how, they have no idea yeah. that people are able to do these things. Like upwards of a hundred characters on demand. And it must be quite sort of surreal, that visual, when, especially when you associate, you know, a, a range of different characters with different faces and different body languages, and then to see it all kind of emanate from one person, that's got to be kind of jarring. Yeah, but the thing is, is that means that you came in at the top level, except you're all green. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and everybody, everybody pins their hopes on the fact that having a star involved with anything is going to put asses in the seat. And there's no, there's no formula. There's absolutely almost no evidence that a movie would be successful um, or not successful had they not used artisans. Yeah. 
sometimes it almost feels like it, it comes off as a little desperate and no real sort of attention is drawn to the substance of the film which well, if I listen to the, the tracks to the, those cartoons I mean skipping the visuals they're hoping the visuals will like totally take away and distract you from the fact that some of the performances ain't all that great yeah it's kind of flat line to me it just sounds like a radio play you know I could listen to a adventure show from the 40s from radio and it's basically the same thing to me and a bad performance can really sort of kill if you don't get that sort of chemistry going you know then it doesn't matter how good the animation can be it can look fantastic but it's yes. like you're not immersed in it down to one thing character yeah it uh-huh. always comes down to character is this a character that you can absolutely embrace or can you despise it or can it evoke some kind of emotion purely because of what you're listening to mm-hmm. that's the alchemy and all of a sudden the person that's doing it begins to disappear and the cartoon takes on real life that's believable to you and can suspend your um, disbelief and that's alchemy you know it's like I get hired to come into a room and there's a bar of lead on the table and they say can you turn gold for it yeah. I think I can <laughs> and leave but when a celebrity usually comes in there's a bar of lead on the table when they leave it's still a bar of lead yeah. <laughs> there was no alchemy there was no like subtle or major transformation going on something I'm particularly interested in is directing uh, voiceover actors um, mm-hmm. and going to that sort of alchemy thing from your perspective what would you say is the most important thing for a director to be you know effective when he's getting his or her performance out of the actors I think the thing to remember is uh, let the performers do their thing. They work off instinct. Right. They're not fear-driven. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's more of the business side of things. Performers' job is to be fearless, and then if there's someone trying to co-opt excitement and co-opt things the way they want them to be, they will skip the beauty of ensemble and collective uh, things that come together to make the thing greater than any one person in it. Yeah, I think a good director knows the difference between, you know, who's got to be sort of led by the hand and who doesn't. For the most part, do you get to record uh, scenes together, like with your other actors? Yes, we do. That's good. I mean, and that that I assume contributes a lot to the the chemistry and and that sort of dynamic between performances. Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, the show doesn't stop because they turn the mics off. I mean, everybody's riffing. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going in and out of different characters, and it's like it's this playful energy, uh, and more often than not, it actually leads to something that's beneficial to the show. You know, I'm just I'm I'm so lucky to be part of it. Yeah, and I and I'm very glad that it's you know ongoing and um, strong. You know, there's always that concern that when something is off the air for a while and it comes back, who oh, is it going to maintain that strength? But I, I in all candor, I I think it's probably better now than it's ever been i mean there are certain episodes that i've, I've just been stunned by how well crafted they are and uh there's a lot of people that that you know were disturbed when the show was reintroduced and you know i i really have no idea what the problem was it's the same writers and 99 percent of it is positive that's good it's that's just that, it's just that whenever you go to any website those are the people who are on a tear and they're basically trying to prove to the rest of the people on there that they get something special yeah as far as uh, uh, future projects is Futurama the main thing on the agenda or do you have other stuff that's lined up oh yeah there's always stuff lined up but um, 
personally, I've been really busy working on my own project uh-huh. um, that I'm trying to get off the ground and, uh, you know, produce and, and not so much direct, but to uh, go oversee and also do a few of the voices. Right. Is that animation? Yes. Uh-huh. Series idea or a film idea? Television. Uh-huh. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I like television. Very best with that. And, uh, well, thank you a million. Um, this has been absolutely fantastic. And personally, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity. So, uh, I appreciate that very much. Thanks for the kind words. Looking forward to the new season. Now go to bed. <laughs> okay, will do. Okay. That was Ben there interviewing Billy West, Fry from Futurama, for anyone who uh, hasn't been listening for the last half an hour. I've kind of um, developed a bit of a thick skin for the interviewing side of things, and I did hit the ground running. I think my first interview was Bill Plimpton, mm-hmm. and that was kind of, okay, I, I, I can do this, you know. But this was one, like, when you have that sort of childhood association, you, you think you're prepared, and you think you're there, and you're with it, and then you kind of really got to fight to not be a, a blathering mess. And uh, very interesting learning about that side of the process, you know, because so often with these interviews, we're talking to people who, you know, work on the animation side of things rather than the performance side of things. So for me, I thought that was quite fascinating. I also appreciate the sort of level of candor where he talks about, you know, backlash and, and criticism and how people are so very sort of quick to judge, you know, things that are different or when there is a situation where there are politics involved, you know, people feel like they have to pick a side. And uh, Ren and Stimpy, the story of how that show came together and how it morphed and how, you know, it, it, it became a very different kind of show uh, and the reasons behind that. Very divisive, very um, emotionally charged. And one of those things where, I mean, my predominant attitude toward when that kind of thing goes on is, is well, I wasn't there. So it's none of my business. Mm-hmm. It's my business as to whether or not I enjoy the show. Yeah. You know, or whether or not it's it's I still find it engaging but that whole story and and I'm not sure how familiar you are with it but it's one of those stories where I'm kind of on everyone's side not to be a kind of you know a uh, fence sitting you know wishy-washy but like if you put yourself in the shoes of Chris for Lucy say yeah you'd feel angry that your show was being taken away from you even mm-hmm. if you hadn't met deadlines or you weren't uh, uh, meeting you know the network halfway in terms of content you know, provisions and whatnot if you were in any of the other sort of animated shoes who you know decided to stay on this was you know the early to mid 90s work wasn't abundant you know you'd stay on if you were in billy west's shoes and you had this great gig pr- playing a character that you loved you'd stay on you know i so i don't feel that anyone was actually out to get anyone i just kind of feel that you know sometimes life just just presents these unfortunate situations and you know do you think they were were all passionate about Ren and Stimpy that's why John Kay was so I can't pronounce his surname John Kay (laughs) was so um, upset about losing them that's why Billy West was so keen on staying and the animators were keen on staying because they'd all put in so much effort and animation is a collaborative process in most cases they were so keen on it that that's why it went the way that it did I think it goes hand in hand with you know you create something that you know it, it, it its origin was somewhere in your brain and you know now you you're not allowed to touch it anymore for a certain period of time and then you watch it you know um go into the hands of other people people who formerly you were working alongside who are now in charge of it there is a mix of uh vitriol and magnanimousness from every camp i see you know 
like Billy talking to him, you know, he will talk about the talent of John Chris Felusi and developing that character originally. And John Chris Felusi will do likewise with people like Billy West and Bob Camp. Like, at no point does anyone, from my recollection, and I've read various accounts and I've heard various, you know, talks on animation where this subject has come up and some of them contradict each other and some of them are sort of in line with each other. But uh, in all of them, it seems like everyone still kind of respects the abilities mm-hmm. of the people involved. And there was no sort of sniping in regard to, well, he's a terrible animator or he's a terrible actor or he was a terrible director. They did sort of acknowledge that there was a reason they all came together to begin with. And it's kind of sad when you're a fan of something. And you want the people involved to to all get along and you want the situation to just, you know, magically work out with no kinks and no issues whatsoever. I'd have liked the Beatles to get back together. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, like a band that, you know, you find out the the members of the band don't like each other. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of, I don't know. It sort of stinks, you know, because in your head you have this like wonderful vision of everyone just kind of coming together in a room and creativity just flies. And, you know, one thing about Ren and Simpy after Chris Lucy left, and it's a, a I don't know if it's a, a prevailing notion, but there is a sort of thing of like, well, people will automatically write off any episode of Ren and Simpy that doesn't have his name on it. Now, I'm not of that school of thought at all. I think there is a lot of value in the post-John K. Ren and Stimpy. It hung on for a long time as a good show. It was a different show. And the last season was ropey. Like, it, it ended when it should have ended, you know, before things completely derailed. But uh, the third season and the fourth season were... I think it had some really, really high-quality television for the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, actually, it, it, it set in motion a whole design style for contemporary animation from the mid-90s on. If you look at, and a lot of names will come up. I mean, it, 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 a lot of the people who you know had worked on the animation who then became directors of episodes, and you could identify each episode by the design style. And I love that because I love, you know, different illustration styles and different backgrounds. And you could tell, you know, I mean, it has some of my favorite, you know, artists, you know, had worked on Ren and Stimpy and they went on to work on shows like, you know, Samurai Jack and the Powerpuff Girls. And uh, you could see the, the pacing and that economic but effective economic animation coming through to stuff like Spongebob and Dexter, you know. And if you were more of a fan of that kind of, you know, very elaborate John Kreese Lucy animation, then, you know, generally speaking, that design style isn't going to be your thing. But I think there's a lot of appeal in that, you know. And I think when we, what we're doing with the economic animation at the moment is not really embracing essentially what we can do with limited resources. The real labor of animation comes with, like, in-betweening, keyframes, you know, uh, uh, cleanup, a lot of stuff that's now, you know, rendered moot because of software. But you can do economic animation by being imaginative and still have it look visually appealing. Uh, Chris Lucy was in Bristol uh, a few months ago, and he showed some very old cartoons he did before Ren and Stimpy. Uh, It was the new Mighty Mouse. It was this revival of Mighty Mouse that had nothing to do with Mighty Mouse. Like, there would be episodes where he just wasn't in it. And it was sort of an excuse to do this this vaguely risque, fun kids show. A lot more economically produced than Ren and Stimpy was. But the imagination that went and the creativity that went into the poses and the layout, mm-hmm. you know, and the character design with very minimal in-betweening and very minimal, you know, um, lip sync. 
they were fun to watch, you know. And I think that was something that, you know, came through in the first season of Ren and Stimpy. It then became a fuller style of animation in the second season, which I imagine went hand in hand with why everything was taking so long to produce. Mm-hmm. And then after he left, it took that step back again into that economic animation. But I feel that, you know, again, depending on the director and depending on the uh, strength of the story, it was still pleasing animation and it was still, you know, funny and it was still, you know, engaging, you know. I wanted to ask this question when, in Annecy two years ago when uh, there was a Simpsons Q&A. And it was, my question was, and it was going to be to Matt Groening, so it was going to be right to his face. Mm-hmm. Do you think that The Simpsons can carry on without you? Because The Simpsons is, has run for 25 years now. Mm-hmm. And let's say it runs for another 50 years or 60 years or 70 years and Matt Groening dies. Right. Or Matt Groening falls out with Fox, and but Fox still owns The Simpsons. We're Were you carrying a weapon when you asked him this? No, 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 no. Do you think that, you know, something that's that's been created and has now got its a life of its own and almost belongs to the public imagination. Mm. Do you think that you know the creator has as much control as they'd like to think? I mean, the success of certain animations no longer belongs. It is in the control of the director. It's in control of the audience. Mm. They they control the success. A lot of people didn't like the new Wallace and Gromit shot. You know the the one the, the Bakers the yeah, yeah, yeah. matter of loaf and death, or the original title Trouble at Mill, which I preferred that one. <laughs> I thought it was great, Ardman. I thought. Uh, <laughs> Don't blacklist me. <laughs> I thought. I thought it was. I thought it was good, but they like they broke certain rules for me. Okay. They broke. <laughs> not a mode for breaking rules. Um, Wallace did an awful lot of action. When that's Gromit's thing okay. to do, you know. Aside from that, it was a very good animation. But like hmm. I say, it's down to the public. As much effort went, if not more effort went into producing that. Than any other of the extremely enjoyable shorts, mm-hmm. which but it's down to the public to say whether or not it's enjoyable or not. Yeah, and yeah, I think that the public reaction, you know, obviously there was enough interest and enough ratings to keep Ren and Stimpy going for a few years. I certainly, as a kid, didn't really acknowledge that it had become a different show, like instantly. Like, I know it got darker, and I know it got meaner, and I know it got more violent, and I, I was at an age where I loved that. I relished that. And one of the reasons, supposedly, they, they took John Lucy off was that, you know, his visuals were sort of over-the-top and violent, but, you know, if anything, they got even more visceral and, and horror movie-ish, you know, uh, after he was gone. I think that was sort of down to the... the relaxation of you know what was going on in terms of censoring at Nickelodeon or whatever and also you know the fact that animators were a kind of dark bunch overall and if we can have a medium where we can express that that's fantastic you know and certain design styles of you know like John Chris Felici's design style wouldn't necessarily have fit in with certain stories and the same could be said about Bob Camp or you know various other people who worked on it um, my favorite directors are, you know, the people who came in for like three or four episodes each and you could sort of watch them back being sort of familiar with who they are now as artists and be able to go, okay, that's a Bill Ray episode. Bill Ray being the guy who would do those really elaborate, um, d- horribly detailed background paintings mm-hmm. that would sort of cut away to. Um, when he would direct a whole episode, the characters took on a very signature style to him. Uh, same with people like Chris Riccardi or Lynn Naylor 
like they would have a very sort of retro angular slash curvy style that kind of would go hand in hand with sort of retro like jazz illustration some of them would be very kind of almost uh, uh, Disney-ish some of them would be mm. some of them were, were badly animated like in that like that last year there were a couple that were just knocked out very quickly and no matter how good an illustrator you are if you're sort of up against the wall in terms of production time then it's going to show and in a way I am sort of glad that it, it bowed out when it did rather than you know continue to go down that path because you don't want to show to be regarded as something that's completely betrayed what it was originally mm-hmm. but there will always be this this well I don't know if always but I think certainly at the time and perhaps for a while to go there'll be this contingent of people who think well you know it has to be good because it's it's one of the John K ones and it can't be good because it says games animation at the end rather than you know Spoonco you can watch the new Ren and Stimpies or the newer Ren and Stimpies from like God, nearly 10 years ago now um and they were John Kay completely unfiltered and completely, you know, no restraints whatsoever. Now, there is a sort of debate as to the appeal of those episodes. Like some people, if they, they are very, very tuned into what Chris Lucy does, will love them because it ticks every box. Then people who were more just a fan of Ren and Stimpy, the Nickelodeon show in general, would and have found them, you know, very over the top and a little uh, unrelenting in terms of the pacing. Mm-hmm. I remember when I saw them and, and had I couldn't sort of help myself. I had a high expectation because it was such a huge part of, of my childhood and my influence. And I was sort of, on the whole, unmoved by the adult Ren and Stimpy. Except for one episode that, if it had been edited a bit tighter, would have been, I think, quite close to the original tone. And it was about Ren uh, talking to a psychiatrist. And uh, I saw a couple of these at uh, the Bristol Encounters Festival, where Chris Felusi was. And it was interesting watching the same content with an audience who were screaming laughing. And it was, it was not disingenuous. Like, it was a context where this story worked. Now, just watching it at home, you know, on a date or on your own or with a mate, like it doesn't quite translate. Like, I think the medium for John Crisfalusi's energy isn't necessarily broadcast television, unless it's something very short-form, like a music video or a bumper or an ident, when he does those really well. But those long-form stories, it seems like their audience is more of a festival audience. They should be shown in a cinema. You well, know. It's, it's, the, the, instance, the formula and that is based on the early cinematic shorts of, mm. of, of the Warner Brothers, Tex Avery, you know, when they just used to write gags and things. Yeah, I believe so. That's that's probably the reason behind that. I would say certainly it would be, and I think when when he was working with Nickelodeon for a while, for a few years, you had this perfect cocktail of this manic, you know, incredibly enthusiastic guy, and you know, a television network that needed to to keep things restrained to a degree. And they struck a balance that was fantastic. It was very edgy, very, I think, controversial programming at the time, but even still restrained from what he wanted to do. But it worked for the audience it had, you know. It's just a shame that they couldn't keep that balance going for, for you know, as long as they did. But yeah, I'll always, uh, I'll always be a sort of staunch defender of, of you know, post-John K. Ren and Stimpy, the third and fourth season, I would say. Fifth, not so much. But... Uh, Back to Billy West. 
No. <laughs> uh, the new season of Futurama is on in the States. Now, we talked a little bit about the new Futurama uh, in the last podcast. I kind of feel like the new ones are just as strong, you know, if not stronger than when it was originally on Fox. Yes, um, I'd agree with you there. I really enjoy the, I really enjoy the new uh, the new season stuff because it's it's in effect taking a step back and forward at the same time, sort of nearly doing mm. splits. But when when they became movies, they did an hour and a half long. It mm-hmm. didn't fit. The yeah, format yeah, didn't right. fit. You're just talking about um, where John Kay's format fits. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the dynamic of Futurama doesn't fit for an hour and a half. Perhaps that's why these new ones, to me personally, um, and maybe to others, feel a lot better. I really enjoy the new ones. It seems like they have a good gag rate to, you know, allocated time per episode. And uh, the timing is really fast, really snappy. And the writing is just very intelligent. It's it's very well thought out, isn't it? Yeah. A, future, a Futurama uh, fan, you know, may feel a little bit smug if they get a few of the jokes, because the jokes are very sciencey and yeah. maths, very, you know, mathematical. Uh, if there is a if there is a joke to do with a maths problem, you will guarantee that if you sat down and did the problem, you'd get the joke. Right. right. Or the alien language that you see on the billboards in the background. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, you there's know, this own language that they've created. That all makes sense as well. It's a very considered show. Yeah. And you, when you think, you know, you can you can have that degree of of intelligent writing about intelligent subjects, about academic subjects, about science and that, and, that. and you think of how lazy the writing is in something like the Big Bang Theory, which is supposedly all about that type of person, that type of you know high highly you know invested in academe and whatnot. Why can you get that right with one thing and and completely miss the mark with another thing? You know. Hmm. But yeah, and also the kind of cultural references and the, uh, the historical references is one which, of the newer ones, that I, I felt, wow, this show, I didn't expect the show to be this strong. And it's predominantly about Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. That is so... The Da Vinci Code, I think <laughs> it's called. Yeah. That one is so funny. Like, yeah. And it has so much like packed into it. Well, this is it. I mean, in half an hour, you can pack so much into it. And that's I think that's... The best format, or 20 yeah. minutes rather. In fact, so much in or 22 minutes, however long it is. Rather than write, you know, 10 minutes worth of good jokes and stretch it over 20 minutes, it becomes interminable. You know, yeah. It's, it's, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to more Futurama. Me maybe. too, especially, especially with Mr. West providing the voice as ever. Something for the Denmark-based listeners, uh, or anyone, I guess, who speaks Dutch, Another animation podcast. The technifilmpodcast.blogspot.com. Techni is spelled T-E-G-N-E. If you uh, are a fan of my ramblings... Um, and how could you not be, yeah. for the love of Pete? They featured Steve recently. They did indeed, yes. So check him out over there. Moonlighting. Yeah, Moonlighting, doing another job. A very interesting chat with uh, Martin, the guy who runs the podcast. Give it a listen. Mm-hmm. Very interesting conversation I had with him. We'd like to thank everyone that was involved in this Squiggly podcast. Special thanks to Jeff at Rock Sugar and, of course, to Billy West for chatting to us. Big thanks to Nancy Beeman for taking part in our interview earlier on. Also a big thanks to Focal Press and AVA Publishing for providing the books. The music for this podcast was provided by Wesley Allard. It was presented by Steve Henderson at Mr underscore S underscore Henderson on Twitter. 
co-presented and produced by my sweet self at Ben L. Mitchell on Twitter. Also check out my blog at benmitchellblog.blogspot.com and my book at throatbook.com. Look out for our Annecy special podcast coming very soon. Until then, we bid you fond adieu. Good news, everyone. Bad news. <laughs>